When the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth? Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. May our testimonies be as deep and as strong as that of Jacob, who when confronted by one who sought to destroy his faith declared, I could not be shaken. Hey everybody, I'm Jared Halverson and this is Unshaken, and we've got some amazing scripture study ahead of us this week. I hope that you've been falling in love with the Doctrine and Covenants as much as I have this year. This incredible, oft-neglected book of scripture, written not only for our day, but in our day. We're not that far removed from this period, whether in time or in circumstance. And I hope that you're getting a sense of that and seeing the relevance of this book of scripture to each of us. As I mentioned in our first episode, if you study the Doctrine and Covenants quickly, which admittedly we're not doing when we take a verse by verse approach. But if you were to back up and just fly over the whole thing as quickly as you possibly could, you would see this time-lapse photography growth of the kingdom of God. And nowhere is that more clear than in these beginning sections of the Doctrine and Covenants, these earliest revelations, line upon line, just laying out the groundwork for this dispensation. Section one, let me get your attention. Hearken to my words. I am God and I am speaking again. Section two, let's put all of this in the context of the covenant. Hearts are turning fathers to children. The, the seed of Abraham are preparing to bless the world, to gather Israel on both sides of the veil. Those first two revelations really do set the stage that this is a big deal. And then section three, this gentle reminder that mistakes will be made, that even though divinity is reaching down, it's humanity that's reaching back up and we make mistakes. And so this is a gospel of repentance and thus a gospel of reassurance. Section 3 then shifts to section 4, this great and marvelous work that we are engaged in. And if you tack section 7 onto that, it is a work giving everything we have, extending indefinitely until the Savior comes, since that's what the restoration is for, to prepare the earth for His coming. Section 5, gain a testimony. And section 6 and 8 and 9, Learn how revelation works, because for you to engage in this all-encompassing work, you'll need to know that it's true, and you'll need to know the voice of God as He directs you in this work. Honestly, those first nine sections of the Doctrine and Covenants really do lay out the groundwork of what the Lord is trying to accomplish in our day. And in section 10, which is where we're starting today, you get to zoom back out and see a big picture to understand that there is a battle going on. It would be one thing to engage in this all-encompassing work in a vacuum and invite the souls to come unto Christ when there were no other forces pulling them away from Him. But that's not the world we live in. In fact, I don't think that's ever been our experience. From the war in heaven, which has now been transferred to a war on earth, there is a pull and a polarization between good and evil, light and darkness, Jehovah and Lucifer. And section 10 which is kind of the sequel to section 3, really dramatizes this battle that we're engaged in. Remember section 3 was the loss of the 116 pages, and section 10, an explanation of what to do from there. But like I said, this is so much bigger than simply the loss of that manuscript. This is evidence that, that the theater of the war in heaven has shifted, and that now we are battling here on earth, fighting the good fight, as the Apostle Paul said. In fact, to set the stage for section 10, 
Let's take a quick field trip to the end of the New Testament and see in Revelation chapter 12 the description of this war in heaven that has been transferred to earth. You see in the middle of that chapter, verse 7 speaks of war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon and the dragon fought and his angels. But what's amazing about Revelation chapter 12 is that central verse describing the war in heaven is surrounded on either side with a description of the war as it was unfolding on earth. It's as if John is trying to help us make sense that this is the same battle we've always been engaged in. The same enemy with the same goals fighting basically the, over the same issues and using the same weapons. And just like in pre-mortality, Lucifer was taking aim at Jesus Christ. On earth, he is taking aim at those who follow him, namely the church of Jesus Christ. If you look at the beginning of Revelation 12, he says, There appeared a great wonder in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet, and upon her head a crown of twelve stars. This woman is meant to symbolize the church. In fact, when they built the Nauvoo Temple, they designed it architecturally with this in mind, because at the base there are moonstones, the moon under her feet. In the middle are sunstones, this woman is clothed with the sun, and at the top there are star stones, upon her head a crown of stars. Now this beautiful woman, arrayed in heaven itself, is pregnant. In verse 2, being with child, she cried, travailing in birth, pained to be delivered. This, this woman, the church, is trying desperately to bring something forth. And what she's trying to deliver is the kingdom of God. Now, it's hard enough to give birth to a child. And you sisters know that far better than I ever will. But in verse 3, what she's up against makes this labor and delivery far more dramatic than anything I've ever seen in the hospital. Verse 3, there appeared another wonder in heaven, a great red dragon, seven heads and ten horns, seven crowns upon his heads. His tail drew the third part of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. So again, hearkening back to the war in heaven, when a third of the hosts of heaven followed the adversary and being cast out. But then the, the verse ends with this, And the dragon stood before the woman, which was ready to be delivered, for to devour her child as soon as it was born. This is the exact opposite of a midwife. The last thing you would want in the delivery room. This ravenous dragon, ready to devour the kingdom of God as soon as the church is able to bring it forth. Which is an interesting detail even in itself. That even more than the church, what concerns the adversary is what the church is trying to bring into the world. Remember, churches means the ends is having true disciples of Jesus Christ to establish Zion, bring forth the kingdom of God. If the church isn't able to do that, then I imagine the church wouldn't receive much opposition from the adversary. But there he crouches, ready to devour whatever the church is able to produce in us. Now verse 5, she is able to give birth. She brought forth a man-child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. No wonder what we're seeing at the beginning of this final dispensation is a bringing forth of the Word of God. So imagine New Testament Christianity here. Jesus Christ is establishing His church upon the foundation of prophets and apostles, He Himself being the chief cornerstone. But what is that church trying to accomplish? Jesus said it in the Lord's Prayer. Thy kingdom come. He wants this child to come forth. And it starts to, but then in verse 5, this child meant to rule the nations with the word of God is immediately caught up to God and to his throne. 
It could not safely survive in that time period. Not with the dragon ready to devour him. Think of poor Apostle Paul, who is simultaneously battling the apostasy, even as he's prophesying that it will ultimately occur. The church is spreading across the Mediterranean at breakneck speed, and combining new truth with old beliefs is always difficult. If you've ever served a mission where the church is young, you sense that. And first century Roman roads notwithstanding, transportation and communication are such that there is no way to keep the apostasy at bay. Paul can write epistles, and he can visit churches all around the Mediterranean. But as far as keeping the apostasy at bay, short term, it's not going to happen. And so the kingdom of God is caught up to him. And what happens to the church itself? Think about Jacob 5 and the allegory of the olive tree and all of the labor that the Lord of the vineyard and his servants put in to try to save those trees, especially during this New Testament and early apostasy period. As the branches start to proliferate at the expense of the roots that cannot hold it together, this massive Gentile influx into the church, bringing with them a lot of Greek philosophy that is at odds with New Testament Christianity. And so this fledgling kingdom of God, primarily priesthood authority, is taken back to God. And what's left? The church. But just like we saw in Jacob 5, the Lord doesn't abandon his vineyard. He works with that tree. The fruit isn't coming forth. The child isn't there to grow up, but the tree is still present. The church still exists, and the Lord doesn't give up on his church. He digs and dungs and prunes and waters and scatters and grafts. He does everything he possibly can to keep the tree alive, because it still has a role to play in bringing forth its fruit eventually. What we see in verse 6, notice the woman the child is no longer present, but the woman is. Verse 6 of Revelation 12, the woman fled into the wilderness. And wilderness is an excellent metaphor for the apostasy. But notice the description of what takes place during that time. She fled into the wilderness where she hath a place prepared of God, that they should feed her there a thousand two hundred and threescore days. Now if you do the math on that, that's three and a half years which is basically the same amount of time that Elijah spent with the heavens sealed, trying to survive in the wilderness, but with the help of God sending ravens to be able to feed him morning and night and drink water from the brook Cherith. You get a sense of what's happening with Elijah? He's up against the enemies of God. Right? Remember the, the contest on the top of Mount Carmel? We've got fire. Yes, we do. We've got fire. How about you? Well, that's just a preview of coming attractions and a, and a continuation of the war that's always been raging. Lucifer versus Jehovah, the priests of Baal versus Elijah, the apostasy versus the church of Jesus Christ. And so that three and a half year famine becomes an excellent metaphor for the apostasy itself. And here, this woman in the wilderness for three and a half years, this apostasy period, but she is being fed there. Even if it's only raven's rations, she's being kept alive. Why? Because the same mother who gave birth to this child deserves to be able to raise it. From there we go to verse 7, this reminder of the war in heaven, just to set the stage that what I just was talking about, this war on earth, is simply a continuation of the war in heaven. He describes that battle in beautiful terms, and then in verse 12, 
kind of bookending of this description of the war in heaven, let's get back to earth and talk about the war that you are engaged in right now. So in verse 12, he says, Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and of the sea, for the devil is come down unto you. Same enemy, same war, having great wrath, because he knoweth that he hath but a short time. No wonder there's so much opposition to the restoration from the very beginning. Ask Joseph Smith about that. Verse 13, When the dragon saw that he was cast into the earth, he persecuted the woman which brought forth the man-child. That's why the Church of Jesus Christ always seems to have a, a target on its back. Many of you have felt that personally. But verse 14, like the same idea. What makes Revelation 12 tricky is he's basically telling the same story twice. Those first six verses and now these last few. So there's an echo here. And he says in 14, To the woman were given two wings of a great eagle, that she might fly, now this should start ringing a bell, into the wilderness, into her place, where she is nourished for a time and times and half a time from the face of the serpent. Again, if you think of time, and then times, there's at least two more, and half a time, there's three and a half. Same thing as the 1,203 score days. So basically, verse 6 and verse 14 echo each other. And it's about this woman, the church, going into the wilderness, a place prepared, her place, and fed, nourished, through the apostasy. Now, all of this is meant to set the stage for the restoration because this woman is meant to come out of the wilderness now. The three and a half years, the time, times, and half a time have come to their end. And this woman who labored so faithfully to bring forth her child is now preparing the earth for that child to return and rule with his magnificent rod of iron. In fact, do you remember two weeks ago when we were studying section 5 and we saw the very first chronological mention of the church and how it was put, again, drawing upon Song of Solomon, but also drawing upon Revelation 12. This is Doctrine and Covenants 5 verse 14. The beginning of the rising up and the coming forth of my church out of the wilderness. Now can you hear Revelation 12? Clear as the moon fair as the sun, terrible as an army with banners. You get a sense of that imagery now? Clear as the moon, this woman was clothed with the moon beneath her feet. Fair as the sun, this woman is clothed in the sun. Terrible as an army with banners. If the stars represent God's followers, just like the dragon dragging down a third of the stars with him in his tail, Doctrine and Covenants 5.14 is such a magnificent image, drawing together these various symbols, helping us see the woman is coming out of the wilderness now. She's ready to raise this child. The church has been fed and nourished through this time. And hold on to that, because we'll see it taught beautifully at the end of section 10. But as we begin the start of this revelation, Keep in mind this army with banners coming forth, because it is a war. And what we see regarding the 116 pages, section 3 and section 10, is simply one battle in this larger war. A battle over the rod of iron, with which this child is meant to rule the nations. Now we saw last two weeks ago, in section 3, some of God's rules of engagement 
The first was in verse 1, that God cannot lose. His works, his designs, his purposes, they can't be frustrated. His second rule of engagement was verse 2, that God can't be turned out of his course. Push and pull all you want. His is a straight course, one eternal round. His third rule of engagement is in the third verse of section 3, that man's works might fail, but God's works never do. I love how he establishes those rules of engagement from the very beginning of that revelation. Well, he does similar work in section 10. This revelation meant to describe what happened to the 116 pages, and where is Joseph Smith meant to go from here. The two best places to see it, and we'll see it as we go through verse by verse, but to see the end from the beginning, notice verse 14. Verily I say unto you that I will not suffer that Satan shall accomplish his evil design in this thing. I love that rule. As a former athlete myself, it would have been really nice at the beginning of a game, when you go out to shake hands with the, other cap the captains of the other team, to be able to say from the start, oh, just so you know, you're not going to win. I will not allow you to accomplish your evil designs. He lays down a similar law in verse 43, where he says, I will not suffer that they shall destroy my work. So that's similar to another rule of engagement we could have mentioned from section 3, where he says, my work shall go forth. Well, here it is. I will not suffer that they shall destroy my work. Yea, I will show unto them that my wisdom is greater than the cunning of the devil. <laughs> I love the, the Lord laying down the law. I'm smarter than you. I'm stronger than you. And so I will win. I mean, just so you know, this is my work. And it's also my glory. I love leading my children into this battle because of the kinds of soldiers it turns them into. As Mr. Maxwell used to say, this is a real war with real casualties, but we have a real commander at the head. And as long as we stay on his side of the battlefield, we cannot lose. So again, in the context of these early revelations, there will be need to repent, section 3, but there is a promise of eventual victory, section 10. Now, section 10 also gives us an interesting insight into the kind of strategy that the adversary has been using ever since he lost the first round of this war, the war in heaven. And his ultimate goal is described in this section in a single word that keeps appearing over and over and over. That word is destroy. We see it in verse 6 and 7 and 12 and 19, 22, 23, 25, 27, 43. In sacred places, we learn that one of the adversary's names is the Destroyer, a name that he goes by in the Old Testament as well. Now, if the adversary's ultimate plan is to destroy, to destroy the work of God, how does he do it? Well, as a master strategist, the adversary has multiple plans of attack. His, his goal hasn't changed. He still wants to destroy God's work. But if plan A doesn't work, he, he'll always fall back, regroup, and try something different. Plan B and plan C and on through the alphabet. But with that in mind, think about this. Plan A, as far as this dispensation is concerned, was to destroy Joseph Smith. Remember how Joseph described it when he's there in the sacred grove? Offering a prayer that would ultimately usher in this final dispensation? Joseph said, it seemed to me for a time as if I were doomed to sudden destruction. And at that very moment when I was ready to sink into despair and abandon myself to destruction, I saw a light. 
So the destroyer was first attempting to destroy the prophet, and God came to save the day. So the adversary retreats, regroups, and shifts to plan B. And plan B was to destroy the Book of Mormon, to devour this child as soon as it came forth. There's actually a fascinating article that Andrew Hedges wrote years ago about protecting the plates in Palmyra. And it's full of examples of the adversary trying to destroy the plates even before they could ever be translated. Remember that great insight that Moroni gives us back at the end of Mormon, where there is a difference between plates and record, where he says the plates are of no worth, who cares, it's only gold, but the record, wow, now that's something worth preserving. Well, I love the fact that the adversary is scared to death of the record, the message of the Book of Mormon. He couldn't care less about the plates, but those that he used to try to destroy the work of God, they didn't care about the record. They did care about the plates. So it's almost like the adversary says, hey, I'll give you what you want if you give me what I want. You can take the gold. I know that it's the wealth of the world that you're after. So go ahead and go after the plates. It'll end up destroying the record, which is what I'm really after. So this work of destruction, destroying the plates, became the adversary's secondary plan. In fact, according to Mother Smith's account, the day after Joseph Smith went to the Hill Cumorah the first time, back in 1823, he told his family that the angel of the Lord says that we must be careful not to proclaim these things or to mention them abroad, for we do not any of us know the weakness of the world, which is so sinful, and that when we get the plates, they will want to kill us for the sake of the gold, if they know we have them. So you get that sense? They want the gold, the adversary wants the record, I scratch your back, you scratch mine. Or how about when Joseph finally obtains the plates in 1827? Moroni says to him, Now you have got the record into your own hands, and you are but a man. Therefore you will have to be watchful and faithful to your trust, or you will be overpowered by wicked men. For they will lay every plan and scheme that is possible to get them away from you. And if you do not take heed continually, they will succeed. While they were in my hands, I could keep them. And no man had power to take them away, but now I give them up to you. Beware, and look well to your ways, and you shall have power to retain them until the time for them to be translated. So very clear cautions here. The adversary is still doing his best to accomplish plan A, destroy Joseph, but he's shifting towards plan B, to destroy the Book of Mormon itself. The story of Joseph actually obtaining the plates and bringing them home that night is incredible. He's jumping over logs and he's fighting attackers. Three times he's attacked on the way down the hill, hit with the butt of a gun. Joseph is fighting his way down the hill. His final attacker, he knocks him out as he's defending himself and dislocates his thumb in the process. By the time he runs back to his own home, out of breath, he's telling his, his brother, go get the, uh, the box so I can put the plates in. And Dad, can you put my thumb back into place? He buries the plates under the bricks in the hearth of the fireplace. He later hides them under the floorboards of a cooper's shop across the road. Then he digs them up and reburies the box that they'd been in and then hides the plates under a pile of flax up in the loft. The mobsters come, they, they break into the shop, they rip up the floorboards looking for the plates. This is intense. No wonder Joseph ultimately has to move back to Harmony, Pennsylvania. There's that famous story of Joseph hiding the plates in, in a barrel of beans to be able to make the journey. Remember Moroni's warning. 
I was able to protect them. You, eh, you're a mere mortal. I, good luck with this. Do your very best. And Joseph had to. Overcoming the adversary's plan B, destroying the plates, took all of Joseph's wisdom and work. But unsuccessful at that, what's the adversary do? As usual, he retreats, he regroups, and he retries. And what was plan C? If I couldn't destroy the prophet or the book itself, can I at least destroy the credibility of this message? It's like the adversary had to shift from plates to record. Fine. I couldn't destroy you or the plates. The book is going to be translated. Darn it, that's the last thing I wanted. This man-child, to be able to rule, needs his rod of iron. Well, if I can't wrest it from his hand, can I delegitimize it? So even as he lifts that scepter of truth, no one pays it any heed? That's where section 10 comes in. As we'll see, the adversary's plan to take the 116 pages and to have those who stole them change the wording so that if Joseph retranslates the Book of Mormon and it comes out just as it did the first time, then they have, a, they have the original copy. And they can compare the two. And even though theirs is doctored, they can make it look like, oh, see, Joseph isn't a real prophet. He can't translate. This thing is made up off the top of his head and he couldn't remember the story straight. So with these two disparate versions, Joseph's no prophet. This is no scripture. Fine, you can have your story of a gold Bible. You can even say you translated it by the gift and power of God. This story is a figment of his imagination. And there goes the credibility of this book. Now we're going to see Plan C unfold in Section 10, along with what the Lord has done to make sure that Plan C isn't going to work. Remember his ground rules. I win this. But again, that doesn't mean that the adversary gives up. He knows he'll lose the war, but he's confident he can win some battles along the way. So, having failed Plan C, what does he do? Retreat, regroup, retry. And what's Plan D? Fine, you have your prophet. You have the Book of Mormon. People actually believe it. But in my efforts to destroy God's work, Plan D, let me destroy people's use of the Book of Mormon. Their study. We'll see that most clearly in section 84. Which, incredibly, was given on the five-year anniversary to the day of Joseph finally receiving the plates from the angel Moroni. You think that date sticks in his head? Probably just as much as his anniversary to Emma is his anniversary with the angel Moroni. You don't want to forget either one of those anniversaries, believe me. But on that anniversary, the Lord says to Joseph Smith, the saints are treating lightly the Book of Mormon. This voice from the dust has been gathering dust, and the church will be under condemnation until that changes. Satan seemed to be succeeding at Plan D. Destroy our study of the book. Well, if we've overcome Plan D and we're actually studying the Book of Mormon, what's Plan E for the adversary? Retreat, regroup, retry? Fine, I couldn't destroy Joseph. I couldn't destroy the Book of Mormon. I couldn't destroy the book's credibility. I couldn't destroy your study of the book. Well, how about your living of its principles? Remember, this book brings people closer to God, but only if they are abiding by its precepts. It's not having it, plan B. It's not believing it, plan C. It's not even studying it, plan D. The devils know and tremble, James says. It's living its precepts, plan E. And in section 84, that's a worry as well. 
It's not enough to say these things. Are you doing them? Or as King Benjamin said, if you believe these things, see that ye do them. Are we living the teachings of the Book of Mormon? Now, I remember years ago when this all started kind of making sense to me, I was having a conversation with a group of students about these plans of the adversary. Overarching mission, destroy. Plan A, B, C, D, E. And I thought that was it. Because if we're living the Book of Mormon, then we've won. And a wonderfully insightful student raised her hand and said, well, what about plan F? And I, I admitted to her, that's a great question. I don't know. What do you think's next? And she said, what if we're doing all of those things but never sharing that message with others? Then the adversary is at least keeping the, the contagion contained. Yes, he may have lost those true disciples, but just confine it to them and I can win the rest of the war. I was so grateful for her insight. And I'm sure there's yet a plan G and H and I and so forth. But it is worth pondering. For you and for me, what phase of the plan is the adversary on? Do we believe and study and live and share the Book of Mormon? Are we trying to raise this man-child, the kingdom of God upon the earth, with the rod of iron firmly in his hand. For us to help ensure and enable that millennial reign, we have to be able to overcome the adversary in all of his plans. So let's study in depth Plan C, the discrediting of the Book of Mormon, as shown in section 10. Verse 1, Now behold, I say unto you, that because you delivered up those writings which you had power given unto you to translate by the means of the Urim and Thummim into the hands of a wicked man, you have lost them. And you also lost your gift at the same time, and your mind became darkened. It's interesting he would say you delivered them up. You gave them away. You surrendered in that battle. And there's a danger in simply delivering up. And the danger is that you will be delivered up as well. Remember, Jesus taught that. You defend me, I'll defend you. You deny me, I'll have to deny you. Here, you delivered up those writings. Back in section 3, when Joseph is chastised for having done so, the Lord warns him, If you're not more careful, thou shalt be delivered up and become as other men. And this is coming from the deliverer of Israel himself. I want to deliver you from your enemies, not deliver you up to them, and you delivered them up into the hands of a wicked man. Now, that description of Martin Harris, we, we saw it back in section 3, must have come to a jolt both to Martin and to Joseph. I don't think either one of them would have used that term. I mean, a weak man, yeah, more concerned about the persuasions of men and what his, his peers thought than what God thought of him. We all struggle with that at times, don't we? Does that make us wicked? Well, God uses the word here. Now remember, repentance is real. We saw that back in section 3. We'll see it here, how the Lord makes up for it in section 10. But keep in mind that, that stark description, a wicked man. We'll see it echoed and explained a little bit better in a moment. But don't tell me that you lost the 116 pages. When you delivered them up, what you lost, again, lost seems to be kind of wash the hands. It was an accident. You, know, you, you chose to go against my commands and you delivered up the record. But what you didn't intend 
was to lose, in verse 2, your gift. The gift of the plates, the gift of translation, the gift and power of God by which you were to see those records, the Urim and Thummim, all of those things were taken from you. Yes, that's something you lost. Your mind became darkened because what did those gifts do? Urim and Thummim. The Urim means, Urim in Hebrew means lights. It enlightened your mind. It helped you see. That's what light does. But now your mind is darkened. No wonder you can't see the truths of God. Verse 3, nevertheless, this very gentle, merciful turning, he chews them out in verse 1 and 2, and then verse 3, nevertheless, it is now restored unto you again. So here again is the Urim and Thummim. Here again are the plates. They're restored to you. Therefore, see that you are faithful and continue on unto the finishing of the remainder of the work of translation as you have begun. Remember Oliver Cowdery's caution. You did not continue as you commenced. Well, Joseph, you need to continue on until you're done. But then verse 4. If verse 3 was merciful in giving him a second chance, then verse 4 is even more merciful in reassuring Joseph that this second chance is real. You don't have to make up for lost time. This isn't penance or punishment. In verse 4, do not run faster or labor more than you have strength and means provided to enable you to translate, but be diligent unto the end. See what the Lord is trying to balance here? I don't know about you, but when I mess up, and I've got plenty of experience in that area, but when I mess up and someone gives me a second chance, I want to prove to them that this second chance is worth it that I'm not going to fall down on it again. I, if it were me, and I had a second chance to translate it, I'd be pulling all-nighters until it was done. I would be showing God how serious I would take this second chance, that I would never let the pen or the plates out of my hand. I'm going to prove to Him that I can be trusted. Well, what a gentle reassurance. Joseph, I know you're sorry. I know you want to do better this time, and I'm confident that you will. But don't kill yourself over it. I'm asking for your service, but not your servitude. Again, there's a balance here. I love that you see both of them. It's like he, he speeds him up in verse 3. Be faithful and continue till you're done. And then he slows him down at the beginning of 4. Don't run faster or labor more than you have strength and means. And then he speeds him up just a little bit at the end. But be diligent unto the end. He's trying to find this Goldilocks zone, as I like to call it. He's proving the contraries. Don't be too extreme on either end. Be diligent, but be temperate. Be faithful, but don't kill yourself over this. I often joke that there are two kinds of people in the world. And one group loves Matthew 5.48. Be therefore perfect. And the other group loves Mosiah 4.27 or... Doctrine and Covenants 10.4, which both say, don't run faster than you have strength. Do you know those two kinds of people? The first group is often found in the Relief Society, and the second group is often found in the Elders Quorum. No offense to either group, but this perfectionism, I've got to get there now. I'm going to get it done. I'm pulling all-nighters. And the other side, it'll be fine. We'll make it eventually. I just wish those two groups would swap verses every once in a while to calm down the overzealous and to awake and arise those who are too complacent. 
The Lord is trying to help Joseph find that middle ground, that Goldilocks zone where it's just right. You are running but not faster than you're able. In fact, this idea of having strength and means provided, there's this sense that he's providing us the strength and the means. My grace is sufficient for you to do all that I'm asking of you. But I don't ask for all of it at once. Think of how often I tell you to be patient with each other. It's because I'm patient with you. Isn't that how Paul puts it in Hebrews 12? to run with patience the race that is set before you? What a perfect balance there. To run, yes, but to run with patience. This is a marathon, not a sprint. I remember in high school I ran track just to try to stay in shape for football season, which is what I cared more about. But I remember I'd do the jumps. That was about as much running as I wanted to do. 11 steps for a high jump, a little bit longer for the long or the triple. Coach pushed me into the hurdles, which was some jumping too. The 110s were one thing. The 330s felt like a marathon. I used to joke with people that when I was in high school, I ran the 200 hurdles. And those who know their hurdles are like, what? there's the 110s and the 330s. I didn't know there was a 200. Like, well, technically there wasn't. It was the 330s. I just kind of petered out by the end. But I remember one meet. It was near the end, and I thought I was done for the day, but I guess the coach wanted to punish me a little bit more. And there was an empty lane in the 400. And so he said, Halverson, get in there and run the 400. And I'm like, coach, I don't run the 400. I've never done the 400. He said, I know. Just, just run it. You don't have to place. Just finish the race. Get some exercise. I'm like, okay, fine. And I remember standing in my lane at the beginning, wondering how fast am I supposed to go? We're doing one complete lap around the track. And not knowing what the pace was supposed to be, I just assumed, okay, well, I'll just try to keep up with the guys around me. Well, as soon as that gun went off and everyone else took off in a flat-out sprint, I remember thinking, there's no way we're keeping this pace for a whole lap. Well, I was right about that for myself, not for them. They did keep that pace. But there's just something about how long is the, tr is the race and how fast can I actually go to be able to complete it. Jesus said this in the New Testament, count the cost. Because what an embarrassment to sprint out of the starting blocks and to fizzle out halfway through the race. Endure to the end. I will provide strength and means. I love the combination of those two. I'll give you the power to be able to accomplish it and the means to be able to do so. It's that great phrase in the war chapters when, when Moroni is complaining to Pahoran saying, do you really think we're going to win when we don't make use of the means that the Lord has provided? It's like internal, there's the strength, and external, there's the means. And God is going to provide both of them for us. There are times when our strength is lacking and times where we are missing the means. Well, use whatever you do have and that will be sufficient. Well, I'll admit, finding that balance is difficult. But living, verse 4, largely depends on how well we live, verse 5. Pray always that you may come off conqueror. Yea, that you may conquer Satan and that you may escape the hands of the servants of Satan that do uphold his work. Joseph, you escaped a few of those servants on your run down the hill Camorra. Well, they'll still be chasing you for the rest of your life. But how will you come off conqueror? How will you conquer both overzealousness and apathy? How will you conquer either extreme of any issue? By praying always. 
by keeping an eye on coach as he tells you to run a little faster or run a little slower, as he tries to help pace you for this journey, since he alone knows just how long it will last. Pray for that. Pray always. Call upon God. Come off conqueror. That's how we won the war in heaven. Through the word of our testimony and the blood of the Lamb. That's how we'll win the war here on earth. Pray always. Now in verse 6 we see that word first appear in this revelation. Behold, they have sought to destroy you. The destroyer and his servants. That's what they're always after. Yea, even the man in whom you have trusted has sought to destroy you. Now again, this would have jolted both Martin and Joseph into this thought of, Whoa, are you, are you serious? Are you exaggerating here? I could picture Martin going, Destroy Joseph? That's the last thing I wanted to do. Wicked man? Really? Now verse 7, he ties them together. For this cause I said that he is a wicked man. For he has sought to take away the things wherewith you have been entrusted. He has also sought to destroy your gift. Now admittedly, I can understand where Joseph and Martin would be coming from if they, if they balk at that language. I wasn't trying to destroy him. I was trying to back him up. I wasn't trying to be wicked. I was doing my best to be righteous. And I'm sure the Lord would actually agree with that. But by putting this, their actions in starkest terms, he is helping them see the end from the beginning, as he does. Compromising, even with the best of intentions, is not what I'm after. Succumbing to the persuasions of men, for whatever cause, that's wickedness. And relying upon the arm of flesh, instead of placing your faith in God, that will ultimately destroy you. That's how spiritual gifts are destroyed. That's how God's work is destroyed. I know that's a, that's a scary term. We just want to think, no, I, I, I'm just making some mistakes here. And I understand that. But seeing in their clearest light, trying to dramatize it for you, do you see what road you're on? Do you have any idea where it leads? You've got to get off and get back on the straight and narrow. Trust in me. Fear not what man can do to you. Be righteous, not wicked. Build. Don't destroy. Now in 8 and 9, he reiterates what's happened. You deliver the writings into Martin's hands. Wicked men have taken them from you. Verse 9, you delivered them up. Yea, that which was sacred unto wickedness. Again, stark terms. Now in verse 10, we start to see Satan's plan unfold. And notice two words that are important here. Behold, Satan hath put it into their hearts to alter the words which you have caused to be written, or which you have translated, which have gone out of your hands. The two key words there that we'll see over and over through this revelation is hearts and words. Satan's ultimate goal is to destroy the work of God by destroying the word of God. Fine, you've got the man-child. He has no rod of iron to rule with. And how does he destroy the word of God? By taking aim at your heart. If I can affect the way you feel about the things of God, if I can plant temptation there, an emotion pulling you, again, fear of man, persuasions of your peers, it's amazing how Satan preys upon the emotion. 
God is trying to effect a mighty change of heart, while the adversary is taking aim at the same all-important body part. Remember when we saw that God wants us to serve him with all our heart, might, mind, and strength, and by putting them in that order, the heart is the central disposition, it's who we are. And once our heart is placed in a certain direction, then of course the mind and the might and the strength are going to go to it. In some ways those are almost automatic. If my heart is fixed in a certain area, then all my mental or temporal or physical resources will go toward that end. No wonder there's this tug of war between the adversary and the Lord as far as the heart is concerned. So as we read the rest of section 10, keep an eye out for that word heart and notice what the adversary is doing with it in hopes of, of destroying the word of God. Now verse 11 through 19, we'll see the word heart appear often, but this is mostly focusing on the word. How is the adversary targeting the word? Verse 11, they have altered the words. Now they read contrary from that which you translated and caused to be written. Reminds me of 1 Nephi chapter 13. When Nephi sees in vision the, the coming of the word of God, namely the Bible. This book that proceeds forth out of the mouth of the Jews. But as it goes through time, through this period of wilderness experience, the apostasy, many of its plain and precious parts are lost. You get a sense there from verse 11? He's trying to do it again. So I worked on the Bible. Let's see if we can do it on the Book of Mormon. Let's alter some words. Let's try to make things read contrary. So that people will look at this, this word, because it does exist, I couldn't destroy it. But they'll lose faith in it, because I've destroyed its credibility. I'm about 500 pages into my dissertation, which is on how people attacked biblical belief in 19th century America. And it's fascinating to do all this research and try to make sense of how they tried to read the Bible contrary to its true intention in hopes that people, especially emotionally in their heart, would feel shame for believing in it. That biblical belief is beneath my intelligence. It's beneath my morals. It's simply beneath me. And by aiming at the heart and prying them away from their biblical belief, so often because they were altering the sense of the word, trying to wrest the scriptures to their own destruction, reading it in a way that was contrary to what God originally intended. Now verse 12, on this wise the devil has sought to lay a cunning plan that he may destroy this work. There's that word again. We'll see that idea of cunning later in this chapter as well. Verse 13, he hath put it into their hearts to do this. There's the target. That by lying, they may say they have caught you in the words which you have pretended to translate. Interesting that they are lying and they're accusing Joseph of pretending. Who's being honest here? They're lying to make Joseph look like a liar. They're pretending to make him appear as a pretender. Talk about the pot calling the kettle black. Verse 14, Verily I say unto you, that I will not suffer that Satan shall accomplish his evil design in this thing. So again, this reiteration of the rules of engagement. I will not allow the adversary to win. Verse 15, Behold, he has put it into their hearts. There's that word again. It keeps coming up. And what's he planted there? He wants you to tempt the Lord thy God in asking to translate it over again. Now, tempt can also mean to try or to prove, to test. 
And so is God being tested here? Joseph's asking God, can you do it again the same as before? And in 16, then behold, they say and think in their hearts. Interesting, not thinking in their minds, but thinking in their hearts, the seat of emotion and disposition. We will see if God has given him power to translate. If so, he will also give him power again. And if God giveth him power again, or if he translates again, or in other words, if he bringeth forth the same words, behold, we have the same with us, and we have altered them. Therefore, they will not agree, and we will say that he has lied in his words, and that he has no gift, and that he has no power. Remember what Joseph kept saying, I translated this by the gift and power of God. That's really what the adversary is after also. Not just destroy the plates and destroy the record, but destroy the possibility that God can work through gifts and power. That there's no such thing as spiritual gifts. Remember Mormon and Moroni talked about that? That in the last days, if there are no spiritual gifts, it's because there is no faith. And more than anything, the adversary wants to destroy faith on earth. I've got to convince people there are no gifts. That there is no power. Remember, that's what the Lord said in the first vision. They have the form of godliness, but deny the power thereof. Satan is trying to destroy gifts and power. But I'm intrigued by this thought on the adversary's part, on his minions. Well, let's steal the record and then let's change the words. We assume that Joseph is going to test or tempt the Lord to do it again. And his version won't agree with our doctored version. Now, wait a minute. The fact that they altered the words so they would read contrary, what was their assumption? Joseph's going to retranslate, and it'll be the same as before. So our doctored version and his second original, there will be discrepancies there that will destroy the credibility of the Book of Mormon. But what was the assumption? He's going to be able to do it. See, that's what happened with Jeremiah in the Old Testament. When the king comes and hears these words and, and with his penknife keeps slicing off pieces of the scroll and throwing them into the fire. And the servant runs back to Jeremiah and he's like, uh, I, I'm assuming that was your only copy. The, that, that scripture is gone. And Jeremiah's like, huh, no big deal. Get out a pen. Let's write it again. And he produces the same as before. In fact, and then some. I'll give a second version that's even better than the first. Well... The Lord knows how to play that game again as well. That's exactly what's happening here. But to think there's, there's actually belief here. There's actually faith in the prophet, but not a desire to actually obey. That is so messed up, for a lack of a better word. I believe in the prophet's gifts and power. I cannot deny them. So all I can hope to do is destroy them because I do not want to obey. That's been the adversary from the beginning. He knew the Father's plan was the only one that would work, but he fought against it. And Satan and his servants have always been that way. It's like when Jesus is casting out legion and they say, have you come to torment us before the time? We know we're ultimately going to lose, but in the meantime, can't we wreak some havoc? Can't we destroy a few parts of your work? Again, I love that phrase from James. The devils believe and tremble. Who cares if you know it's true? They seemed to. They believed that Joseph would be able to do it a second time, but they just didn't want to follow. All of that to this end, verse 19, we will destroy him and also the work 
plan A, B, and C all seem to be coming together here. And we will do this that we may not be ashamed in the end, and that we may get glory of the world. You see how Satan is aiming at the heart to pursue this work of destruction? We don't want to be ashamed. We want to be proven right that our ways of wickedness, again, this sense of we want to get gain and glory of the world, we, want, we don't want anyone to tell us we're doing anything wrong. This is King Noah and his wicked priests all over again. We have to silence Abinadi because he's making us feel bad. He's crying repentance and showing us the error of our ways. Well, in this discrepancy between our beliefs and our behaviors, we don't want to repent and bring our behaviors up in line with our belief. We want to pull down our belief, eliminate law, so that we can feel good with what we're doing. We want the glory of the world. We don't want to be ashamed in the end. We're not falling short of a standard if there's no standard at all. So verse 20, Verily, verily, I say unto you that Satan has great hold upon their hearts. He stirreth them up to iniquity against that which is good. We're going to see more of that today too. This stirring the pot to try to get people agitated and excited about things. To get them worked up over these things. And it's the heart he's using to do it. Verse 21, their hearts are corrupt and full of wickedness and abominations. They love darkness rather than light. Because their deeds are evil, therefore they will not ask of me. It's so interesting, the sense of darkness versus light. Remember at the beginning of this revelation, your mind was darkened. Well, those who don't want to be in the light, of course they're seeking the darkness. There, my, my deeds, which are evil, will not be seen. No wonder the adversary is the prince of darkness. No wonder the Lord is the Lord of light, and he shines into the darkness, and the darkness comprehends it not. It doesn't want to comprehend. It doesn't want to understand. It doesn't want to know, so it doesn't ask. Therefore, they will not ask of me. What are you hiding from? You're hiding from knowledge so that you can hide from accountability, so that you can hide from condemnation. This idea of, of hiding in the dark preferring that, not wanting to ask of God. Ignorance is bliss. No, it's like plugging your ears or covering your eyes. I don't know. I don't know. I don't want to know. Because if I don't know, then I can't be held responsible for knowing. I don't want to see that standard. Then I'll know that I'm falling short. And just like we saw in a previous verse about them assuming Joseph was going to be able to do it right, and that's why they had to doctor and alter the words, it's like they know what they know, there's a heart within us. There, even though the adversary is trying to take control of it, our heart, the light of Christ, our conscience, evidently they're not completely past feeling yet. But I don't want to ask because then I'll know. It's intriguing that it's not their doubt that's keeping them from asking. In a weird and warped kind of way, it's their faith that is. They kind of know what's there. They just don't want to turn on the light and actually have to see it. They, they sense that there is a gift and power in Joseph Smith that they lack. But I just want to deny it. I don't want to see it. I don't want to be held responsible for it. There is a very interesting phenomenon that I see among teenagers sometimes based on when they go to receive their patriarchal blessing. Honestly, a patriarchal blessing is one of the most incredible gifts God gives us in the church. But I have noticed sometimes among teenagers 
this hesitance to get their patriarchal blessing. And I've talked about that with youth leaders in different places. And often they'll say, yeah, they just don't, it's like they don't have faith in the patriarch. They don't, they don't realize the gift that he's offering them. And I have often felt to, to caution them and say, I, I'm not sure if that's the reason. I honestly have a feeling that what is keeping them from asking God or keeping them from going to their patriarch is not a lack of faith in their prophetic gifts, their patriarchal gifts, but rather almost too much faith in them. I think their concern is not that the patriarch won't know me well enough. It's that he'll see right through me and that I've made mistakes and I haven't fully repented of them. And I just don't want to be there in this sacred space and have my parents there in this amazing moment. And then the patriarch say things that I don't want my family to hear. Now, of course, I'm not saying that this is the only reason that anyone ever postpones their patriarchal. But you should all be getting into such and such an age. I'm not saying that at all. We need to prepare ourselves for that great gift. And that can take time. But I do have a feeling, and I've got this confirmed from some, that what kept them from approaching the Lord on things was that they knew they had things to change. They just didn't want to change them yet. It wasn't their doubt that was keeping them from asking. It was their faith. They knew that God knew. Remember Amulek, I knew, but I would not know. That describes a lot of teenagers. It describes a lot of us. Now, verse 22, we get back to Satan's strategy. Satan stirreth them up. There's that phrase again, to agitate them, to get them worked up over things. That he may lead their souls to destruction. There's his ultimate destination. Verse 23, and thus he has laid a cunning plan. That's the adjective that keeps being used to describe it. Thinking to destroy the work of God. But I will require this at their hands, and it shall turn to their shame and condemnation in the day of judgment. I love the parallel between 23 and 19. Why are they doing this? So that they may not be ashamed at the end. But sadly, that's no way to escape shame. You can't collapse belief down into behavior. You can only bring behavior up into belief. We don't deny. We repent. That's the only real way to overcome the possibility of shame in the last day. Christ has come to rescue us from our guilt and from our shame. He has taken both upon himself. The guilt of our sins, the shame of the cross. He absorbs it. He metabolizes it. He teaches us how we can overcome it as well. For those who are running from the light in order to stay in the darkness, someday all there will be is light because the light and life of the world will be with us. Every knee shall bow. Every tongue confess. So the way to avoid shame in the end is not to hide in the darkness. It's to fully come forth into the light. Verse 24, back to the adversary. Yea, he stirreth up their hearts to anger against this work. That leaves me scratching my head. Again, we keep seeing the stirring up. But to anger against the work? What's there to get mad about? The adversary so often tries to demonize and dehumanize the other. Thomas Paine called it enemyship. 
How do I paint a picture of some other party to make them seem like enemies? That's what Paine was trying to do in Common Sense, where he coined that term. The British are our brothers. They're our forefathers. That's our mother country. But trying to get his fellow Americans to turn friends into enemies, how rhetorically can I convince you to get angry over this enough to rebel and fight against them? Now, I'm grateful that he was successful in that as far as the American Revolution was concerned. But when it comes to a revolution against righteousness, it's amazing how often he will take a group of people and other them to turn the unknown into a threat, a danger, something to be opposed. In fact, something to be fought and annihilated, something to be destroyed. Hitler did it to the Jews in the Holocaust to dehumanize and to demonize that they are to be feared and therefore to be destroyed. So what happened to the Latter-day Saints in Missouri and so much through our history. Those Latter-day Saints are to be feared. They're going to take your land. They're going to take your wives and children. They're going to, they're going to outvote us. They're going to change the nature of our, of our community. Now, usually to get somebody worked up about something, to stir them up, to get them angry enough to want to destroy something, they tend to need to feel justified in that. I mean, typically our conscience isn't so completely seared by sin that we can attack someone without justification. We want to feel that someone else deserves it. That's typically why we demonize the other, so that then we feel justified in attacking them. If the Holocaust was Hitler's final solution, he had to make the Jews feel and seem like the ultimate problem. Or in Missouri, to justify an extermination order, the Missourians had to make the Latter-day Saints seem like they deserved it. We want to justify our actions. Well, notice how they're going to do it. This is fascinating too. Verse 25. Yea, he saith unto them, Deceive, and lie in wait to catch, that you may destroy. Behold, this is no harm. And thus he flattereth them, and telleth them that it is no sin to lie, that they may catch a man in a lie, that they may destroy him. Now we need to unpack this, because this is really important. Satan is trying to convince his the servants of Satan that do uphold his work, to deceive and lie in wait to catch. He wants them to destroy Joseph. But isn't deceiving wrong? Wouldn't it be sinful to lie in wait to want to destroy someone else? Well, as usual, he's trying to convince us that sin isn't actually sinful, that what we're doing isn't wrong at all. Stay out of the light. We don't want to examine that. Just come over and coax them into the darkness so we can be reassured that we haven't done anything wrong. So he's flattering them. He's telling them, there's no harm done. You're not doing anything wrong. They deserve it. It's no sin. What you're doing isn't wrong because what they are doing is. See the end of that? It's no sin to lie as long as you're doing it to catch another man in a lie. It's okay to deceive a deceiver. It's okay to lie to a liar. It's all right to cheat on a cheater. You see what the adversary is doing? He's trying to convince them it's always okay to respond in kind. It's like Jesus said, I know the law says an eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth, but I say, love your enemy. Pray for those who despitefully use you. Turn the other cheek. He was raising the bar every single time. And what's the adversary doing? Trying to bring the bar back down. No, can we go back to an eye for an eye? And here's the irony. The person I'm blinding never actually blinded me to begin with. 
That's why this plan of the adversary is so cunning. If I can demonize the other and make it seem like they've done something wrong, then I can feel totally justified in doing something wrong to them because they started it, even when they didn't. You see how we try to, just the, the mental gymnastics, as, as Satan tries to plant things in our heart or stir us up to anger against someone else? Well, they did something wrong. I've got no proof of that, but I'm assuming it. And as soon as I can convince myself that they are guilty, then I can feel innocent no matter what I do against them because they deserve it. But you notice what that leads to? Because then this party, let's say they were innocent. They were then painted as guilty by these, and now this group, group B, feels justified in attacking group A. But now what does group A have? Group A has justification to fight back to group B. It's almost like this, this escalation that you see of, well, they did this, well, I can do that, and then, well, they, I did this. And higher and higher we go, or in this case, lower and lower we drag one another. And ironically, we both feel justified in doing so. I'm only retaliating because of what they did first. And yet, how did it all begin? With a lie from the father of lies. Not only is he bringing us back down to this level of go ahead and hate your enemies, they deserve it, but by planting the lie to begin with, he's getting us to hate those who weren't actually our enemies and could have been our friends. It's incredible the adversary is trying to reverse the Sermon on the Mount. You get that sense in verse 26. Thus he flattereth them, tell them exactly what they want to hear, go scratch those itching ears, and leadeth them along until he draggeth their souls down to hell. And thus he causeth them to catch themselves in their own snare. See, what was the snare? I'm going to catch him in his deceit. And in order to do it, I'm going to deceive. No wonder Satan doesn't care about those who are serving him. That's what's so amazing about the end of Alma 30. Remember when Mormon has this, and thus we see moment after the death of Korihor? This antichrist that did so much to build the, the adversary's kingdom. And yet what happens? He's trampled to death. And thus we see that the devil does not support his children, but speedily drags their souls down to hell. It's exactly what he's after here. And if he can drag both parties down, all the better for him. I'll have this group set the trap for that group, and both groups will fall into the pit together. Man, talk about cunning. He got this group to sink to the level of that group. You have become what you intended to oppose. That's scary. And we see it happening all around us. In our efforts to oppose anger, we get angry. Frustrated by those who engage in name-calling, we call them names. Rather than choose to rise above that, we descend to that level, and each group keeps dragging the other down. And that's the way he's always done it. In verse 27, he, it's like he shifts from the specific to the universal. 27, thus he goeth up and down, to and fro in the earth, seeking to destroy the souls of men. This is his game plan. It's not just happening right here with 116 pages and Joseph and Martin and all these things. It happens to and fro, up and down. Across the board, the adversary is trying to get us to become enemies against one another, to stir up, to plant things in our hearts so that we feel justified in demonizing and destroying someone else. 
He says it again in 28. Verily, verily, I say unto you, Woe be unto him that lieth to deceive, because he supposeth that another lieth to deceive. For such are not exempt from the justice of God. This cannot descend into some tit-for-tat kind of thing. Well, they started it. You hear that from kids all the time. I don't care who started it. Who's going to end it by rising above it? Who's going to give the other person the benefit of the doubt? Instead of assuming and accusing the other person is evil so I can be evil to root them out of theirs. No. It's like this vicious cycle of mistrust and misbehavior. And if I, when I start to mistrust them, then I'm justified in misbehaving against them. Now, Jesus was doing the opposite. To trust one another. And even when someone seemed to be deserving of the mistrust, not to seek to destroy, but to seek to redeem. To overcome cynicism with charity. I love what President Boyd K. Packer once said. As I begin a new relationship with anyone, it is on the basis of confidence and trust. I have been much happier since. Of course there have been times when I have been disappointed, and a few times when I have been badly used. I do not care about that. Who am I not to be so misused or abused? Why should I be above that? If that is the price of extending trust to everyone, I am glad to pay it. I would so much rather be trusting and occasionally get burned than to be cynical and occasionally being proven right. Because what's my default? Just how do I look at people? How do I view my fellow man? Man, what the adversary is after, that's a hard way to live. The Lord's way is so much better. Now, 29 and 30, he reiterates that the adversary is tactic. They have altered these words because Satan saith unto them, he hath deceived you. Again, he's getting them to justify their deceit by accusing Joseph of deception. And thus he flattereth them away to do iniquity. That way he drags them down. To get thee, Joseph, to tempt the Lord thy God. That way he drags you down. I mean, at the end of the day, Satan wants to drag everybody down. Both those that are working against him and those that are working for him. Verse 30, Behold, I say unto you that you shall not translate again those words which have gone forth out of your hands. For behold, they shall not accomplish their evil designs in lying against those words. For behold, if you should bring forth the same words, they will say that you have lied and that you have pretended to translate, but that you have contradicted yourself. So reiterating their cunning strategy. Verse 32, And behold, they will publish this, and Satan will harden the hearts of the people to stir them up to anger against you, that they will not believe my words. So there we see it again, just like we saw back in verse 10. The combination of hearts and words, the leverage points that Satan uses in his efforts to destroy the work of God. Verse 33, Thus Satan thinketh to overpower your testimony in this generation, that the work may not come forth in this generation. You see, the success of the work will rely upon the strength of your testimony. That's why, Martin, you've got to gain one, section 5. That's why, Oliver, you've got to learn Revelation, section 6 through 9. And it's interesting how the adversary is trying to delegitimize the testimony of God's servants by assassinating their character. If I can make Joseph Smith appear as a deceiver, as a liar, then I don't have to believe what he says. And I certainly don't have to believe the, the words that he's pretending to translate. You'll sometimes see this in court. You'll often see this in political campaigns. 
If it's too hard to oppose their position, then let me attack their person. That's why so much mudslinging takes place during campaign season. Forget about the platform, let's attack the person. Let's go with character assassination, because if they're scared of the person, then they'll vote against them, which ends up being a vote for me. Let's attack Joseph's character, and then we can easily dismiss the words that he has produced. The same thing happens today. Most people don't spend as much time attacking the Book of Mormon or the Doctrine and Covenants as they do attacking the character of Joseph Smith. If they can make him look like a cheat or a liar, an adulterer, a charlatan, you name it, then I don't have to take anything he has said seriously. What the adversary is after is to destroy, to overpower their testimony. And since I couldn't destroy the truthfulness of the Book of Mormon, let me destroy the character of its translator. Now verse 34, let's see what the Lord is going to do in response. Behold, here is wisdom. So let me kind of lay out my battle plan. I won the war in heaven. I'm going to win the war on earth. Here's how we're going to go about this. Here is wisdom. And because I show unto you wisdom and give you commandments concerning these things, what you should do, show it not unto the world until you have accomplished the work of translation. Now he's going to explain this wisdom and the commandments concerning these things in the next few verses, from 34 to 37. Now it's a little bit cryptic. He says in 34, don't show it to the world until you've accomplished the work of translation. In 35, now marvel not that I said here is wisdom to not show it to the world. I'm trying to preserve you here, Joseph. Now 36, I, I didn't say you shouldn't show it to the righteous, but 37, since you can't always judge the righteous from the wicked, Therefore I say unto you, hold your peace until I shall see fit to make all things known unto the world concerning the matter. So Joseph, you don't have to reveal these battle plans to everyone, okay? You don't have to completely shine the light on what we're doing here at Central Command. Now, of course, the righteous are welcome to come in and see. They're going to be participating in it. The wicked, on the other hand, we don't want them in on our plan of wisdom. But in the meantime, since it's really hard to tell righteous from wicked, I mean, Martin Harris sure seems like a righteous guy, but he did a pretty wicked thing. Sometimes it's even hard to tell which side we're on. I was trying to build, and I ended up helping to destroy. Well, then let's just keep this on the down low for now. And just continue the work of translation. Just pick up where you left off until you're done. Remember, that was what he said at the beginning. Don't run faster than you have strength, but get going. Translate again. Now, I can picture at this point, Joseph going, wait, wait, but... I'm devastated by the loss of the 116 pages, specifically the things that were on it. How are the saints going to know about Lehi and about Nephi, their, their departure from Jerusalem, their, their journey to the promised land? This is what sets the stage for everything else that's supposed to come afterwards. How are the saints going to benefit if those things are completely untranslated? I can picture Martin Harris just kind of dreading his post-mortal uh, conversation with Lehi. I'm so sorry that I lost your book, and now you will go unremembered by posterity. But what the Lord explains here is incredible. Talk about wisdom in him. Verse 38, Now verily I say unto you, that an account of those things that you have written, which have gone out of your hands, is engraven upon the plates of Nephi. In fact, verse 39, you remember it was said in those writings that a more particular account was given of these things upon the plates of Nephi? 
verse 40, because the account which is engraven upon the plates of Nephi is more particular concerning the things which in my wisdom I would bring to the knowledge of the people in this account. Therefore, you shall translate the engravings which are on the plates of Nephi. So just pick up where you left off. Keep going. Down even till you come to the reign of King Benjamin, or until you come to that which you have translated, which you have retained. Behold, you shall publish it as the record of Nephi, and thus I will confound those who have altered my words. Now we went through that pretty quick, and I wonder if even for Joseph, if it's kind of kind of trying to catch up, go, wait, 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 what, what are you saying? Okay, I, yeah, I, I just translated the 116 pages. I translated the book of Lehi. It talks about his departure from Jerusalem and their trip to the, wait, okay, and that's right. It did mention that there were two accounts it's said on those plates of Nephi that there would be another set of plates of Nephi, that there were large and there were small, and that the small ones would be a more particular account. Okay, so I'm just supposed to pick up where I left off, and then when he says, translate until you get to the reign of King Benjamin, or until you come to that which you have translated, that you've retained. Now, when the Lord can see all things past, present, and future, that makes perfect sense to him. Joseph's going to be like, what are you talking about? Because that more particular account, the small plates of Nephi, remember this is uh, 1 Nephi chapter 9, when Nephi is going, I'm supposed to do two copies. I don't know why, but wisdom in God. Remember, here is wisdom. Well, the Lord's been wise for the last, what, 2,400 years. Nephi, two copies. Fast forward a thousand years, now we've got Mormon, in words of Mormon saying, I don't know why I'm including this second copy, but I'll stick it on at the end because it's a wise purpose in God. Wise indeed, more than you could imagine, Mormon. But the placement at the end, I'm just going to tack it on, I know it's redundant, I know it's, we passed through a thousand years of history now, and then I'm, I'm somehow doing like a flashback and, and doing a second version of the beginning, I don't know. But here's, I can, I can only imagine Joseph, but they're going to miss out on all those incredible stories about Lehi. Joseph, trust me, just keep translating. And I imagine Joseph finishing the Book of Mormon chronologically. There's Moroni, it's the end of the Nephite civilization, but there's still more plates. Huh, wonder what this has. And he kind of turns a page and, and says, okay, um, keep writing, Oliver. Uh, I, Nephi, having been born of goodly parents. Huh, another Nephi? Man, there's so many of them. What are we on, like fifth Nephi now? I don't know. Um, wherefore I was taught in all the language of my father, uh, my father Lehi. Wait, wait, I know we've had two, we, we had that original father, son, Lehi, Nephi that, we've, that we missed, that we lost. We had brothers, Nephi, Lehi. So is there another later set of Nephi, Lehi? And Lehi lived in Jerusalem during the reigns of King, reign of King Zedekiah. Wait, what? Uh, Oliver, could this? No way. And I just picture Joseph. It really was wisdom in God. There is this second account. And it's interesting that Joseph wouldn't have been reassured, at least not have the proof that it was all going to be okay, until he finished the job that God had set before him. Finish your translation of the large plates of Nephi, that abridgment that Mormon made. When you're done, then you'll translate the small plates of Nephi. Nothing abridged. It's the good stuff. It's the better version. It's the more particular account. And do those small plates until you get up to King Benjamin. 
since that's where you picked up after the 116 pages were lost. The chronology here is breathtaking. Do this, then finish that. It'll fit back in here to fill in the blank of what you lost before. I wonder sometimes if God just lets us stew on our mistake, thinking that there's no way to resolve it, when he's already resolved it centuries in advance. It is wisdom in me. I know what I'm doing. That's why he says in verse 43, back to his ground rules, I will not suffer that they shall destroy my work. I'm just not going to let it happen. Yea, I will show unto them that my wisdom, the wisdom I've been talking about here for the last 10 verses or so, the wisdom I showed to Nephi and the wisdom I showed to Mormon, those two with faith in that wisdom, my wisdom is greater than the cunning of the devil. What is that? The third time we've, used, we've seen that word? The devil is cunning. The Lord is wise. We sometimes try to differentiate between wisdom and intelligence. And we often say that intelligence is a mastery of knowledge. But wisdom is employing knowledge to good effect. Well, compare that to cunning. And to me, if wisdom is employing knowledge to righteous ends, then cunning is employing knowledge to wicked ends. Both the Lord and the devil share a lot of knowledge. How they use it, though, couldn't be further apart. Verse 44, he explains it even better. Behold, they have only got a part or an abridgment of the account of Nephi. I can almost hear the Lord chuckling there as he reassures his concerned prophet, Joseph, it's okay. There were two copies and they stole the wrong one. The one that you still have, that you'll yet translate, is far better than the one that they left with. You see in verse 45, Behold, there are many things engraven upon the plates of Nephi, which do throw greater views upon my gospel. Therefore it is wisdom in me that you should translate this first part of the engravings of Nephi and send forth in this work. If you've ever had the horrific experience of typing a paper or something and then the computer crashes and it's gone and you are devastated, and yet, when you do it over again, the second version is actually superior to the first. Well, that miracle on a much larger scale is happening here. Verse 46, Behold, all the remainder of this work does contain all those parts of my gospel, which my holy prophets, yea, and also my disciples, desired in their prayers, should come forth unto this people. This is an echo of the words of Enos as he's praying first for himself, and then for his own people, and then for the Lamanites, and pleads with God, if our people are destroyed and the Lamanites are not, please preserve these records so they can someday come forth to the Lamanites. They're not listening to us now. Perhaps they'll listen to us then. And then the Lord says to Enos, and I love the way he puts this, here the verb is they desired in their prayers. The way the Lord saw it, it was a little stronger than just a desire. Or maybe he takes our desires this seriously, because he says to Enos, Thy fathers have also required of me this thing, and it shall be done unto them according to their faith. They required it? Wow. How do we require anything of God? Well, evidently God honors our faith enough to consider it a self-imposed requirement. Remember what he said to the brother of Jared, I couldn't keep him out of the veil. 
I, I couldn't withhold because his faith was so strong that it parted it. He, he almost, he forced my hand. I was required to honor his near perfect faith. To Enos, he said, it'll be done according to their faith because their faith was just like yours. And here in verse 47, he's still talking about that faith. I love that their faith was so, oh, I don't know, memorable to the Lord that he's still talking about it centuries later. I said unto them, verse 47, that it should be granted unto them according to their faith in their prayers. Yea, and this was their faith, that my gospel which I gave unto them, that they might preach in their days, might come unto their brethren the Lamanites, and also all that had become Lamanites because of their dissensions. To Enos he said, their faith was like yours. Joseph, your faith needs to be like theirs as well. This word will come forth. My works and my words cannot be stopped. No unhallowed hand can stop the work from progressing, Joseph would later say. Well, he's learning that lesson here. I remember when I was sent to Tennessee with this overwhelming uh, burden I considered, this responsibility. They basically said in training, okay, your job is to go to Tennessee and make sure that every 14 to 30 year old gets to the highest degree of the social kingdom. I thought, wow, okay, uh, how do I do that? And overwhelmed by this sense, that statement from Joseph reassured me. If no unhallowed hand can stop the work from progressing, then certainly no hallowed hand can, and I'm trying to be hallowed. I'm not trying to destroy God's work. I'm trying to move it forward. And even if God's enemies can't stop him, then certainly his friends can't stop him either. We're trying. We're trying to bring this word forth to all those who need it. Lamanites or anyone who joined them through their dissensions. Do we have faith that the gospel will come forth? They did. We should as well. Verse 49, now this is not all. Their faith in their prayers was that this gospel should be made known also, if it were possible that other nations should possess this land. So anyone else who came to the Americas, a land of promise, if we will keep our promises to the Lord. Verse 50, thus they did leave a blessing upon this land in their prayers, that whosoever should believe in this gospel, in this land, might have eternal life. Talk about a land of promise. The promise of eternal life, or in verse 51, the promise that it might be free unto all of whatsoever nation, kindred, tongue, or people they may be. Now as one who is incredibly grateful for the freedoms we enjoy in the United States and freedoms that have spread from the United States almost all across the world, there are still a few holdouts out there, but democracy and equality and freedom has spread. That is one of the great gifts of this American experiment. But I hope that those who are Americans recognize the reality of the end of that verse. Instead of wielding our freedom as some kind of badge of global superiority, look at the end of 51 and realize that that freedom is meant for whatsoever nation, kindred, tongue, or people comes to enjoy it or embrace it. Remember Joseph Smith said that Zion was meant to fill North and South America and then expand it even beyond. Yea, it will fill the world. Patriotism is a beautiful thing. But when our nationalism becomes a tribalism that is exclusive instead of inclusive, then we have a problem. I see in verse 51 a beautiful foreshadowing of the eloquent words of Emma Lazarus 
displayed in the pedestal of the Statue of Liberty. Her magnificent poem, The New Colossus, comparing the Statue of Liberty to the ancient Colossus of Rhodes. She wrote, not like the brazen giant of Greek fame, with conquering limbs astride from land to land. Here at our sea-washed sunset gates shall stand a mighty woman with a torch, whose flame is the imprisoned lightning, and her name, Mother of Exiles. From her beacon hand glows worldwide welcome. Her mild eyes command the air-bridged harbor that Twin Cities frame. Keep ancient lands, your storied pomp, cries she with silent lips. Give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free, the wretched refuse of your teeming shore. Send these, the homeless, tempest-tossed to me. I lift my lamp beside the golden door. Almost makes me think of this mighty woman, this mother of exiles, as a partner with this woman clothed with the sun, with the moon at her feet and a crown of stars upon her head, the mother of the kingdom of God, ready to accept all those that the mother of exiles brings to her. Freedom is not an American monopoly, and neither is the kingdom of God an American church. It had to begin in this land of promise. The prayers of the faithful that preceded them ensured that. But this is a freedom intended for all, of whatsoever nation, kindred, tongue, or people they may be. Now starting in verse 52 and taking us basically through the end of this revelation, we need to keep in mind where we began today. This woman, the church, ready to bring forth the kingdom of God, preserved in the wilderness, nourished and fed through these years of apostasy so that she could come forth eventually to raise the son that she had brought into the world. Verse 52, Now behold, according to their faith in their prayers, will I bring this part of my gospel to the knowledge of my people. That's the Book of Mormon part. Behold, I do not bring it to destroy that which they have received, but to build it up. You see, destroy is part of Satan's vocabulary. It's not part of mine. I build up. I am not trying to destroy what you've already received, namely the Bible, as I bring forth what I am giving you now, namely the Book of Mormon. The best place to understand this is back in the Sermon on the Mount. When, when the people of his day, Jesus' day, are so concerned, you're destroying the law of Moses. You're changing things, and, and Moses commanded such and such. And the Lord keeps saying, I know that the law says, but I say, and the law is on this level, I'm on this level, I'm raising the bar on all of these Mosaic laws, but I'm not trying to destroy the work of Moses. I'm trying to fulfill it. You get the, the difference there? That, keep that in mind as we read the remainder of this revelation. Jesus does the same thing when he gets to the Nephites, as they're concerned. Well, what does this mean that kind of out with the old, in with the new? You're changing things. We've been living the law of Moses for the last millennium plus. And in the gospel of Jesus Christ, no more law of sacrifice? Now it's a broken heart and a contrite spirit. How does this work? And over and over, the Lord reassures them on both continents, I'm here to fulfill not to destroy. Well, if that is true between gospel and law, 
that is also true between church and church. And that's the term he uses. So this part of the gospel is not meant to destroy the older part of the gospel. It's meant to fulfill it, to build it up. Verse 53, For this cause have I said, if this generation harden not their hearts, I will establish my church among them. So again, there's this concern about the heart. I know that's what the adversary is after. He keeps trying to stir it up and to harden it against the things that I'm trying to give you. And what I'm trying to give you is fulfillment. It's building up. But if you are hardened because of what you've heard about Joseph Smith or what you've heard about the Book of Mormon to the point that you're not willing to entertain the possibility of its inspiration, just soften yourself. Open your heart and mind to the possibility that God might actually be coaxing his church out of the wilderness, that he's restoring truth to the earth, that he's speaking again. If you'll just be open to it, you'll have my church among you. I'm trying to establish it right here, out of the wilderness. Verse 54, Now I do not say this to destroy my church, but I say this to build up my church. So just like 52 is describing this part of the Gospel, the Book of Mormon, is meant to destroy the old part of the Gospel, the Bible, it's meant to build it up. Well, in the same way, this church, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, as it will eventually be called, is not meant to destroy my church. Wait, what? I, I thought your church was gone. I thought it was already destroyed. No, it was simply in the wilderness being nourished, being fed for that period of apostasy. All along, I've been trying to bring it out of the wilderness. I've been trying to build it up again so that it's prepared to raise her son. Verse 55, Therefore, whosoever belongeth to my church need not fear, for such shall inherit the kingdom of heaven. Well, too often, we as Latter-day Saints, every time we speak of, the Lord speaks of my church, we automatically assume, oh, that's strictly the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and its members. Based on section 10, the Lord's view of His church is far broader and more encompassing than that. Just like the expanded little tribalism of Americanism beyond that into whatsoever nation, kindred, tongue, or people, anyone desiring freedom find it in the gifts that the United States has extended throughout the world? Well, in a similar vein, my church... You see, when he says in 55, hey, if you're of my church, you don't have to fear. Well, fear what? It's not that he's saying to Latter-day Saints, don't fear the apostasy or don't fear other churches. No, he's saying to other churches, especially other Christian churches, don't fear the restoration. That's why the Jewish leaders of Christ's day were so afraid of him. You're coming to destroy our church. And he's saying, no, I'm coming to fulfill it. Remember, it wasn't even until the days of Paul in, in Antioch that people are starting to be called Christians. Well, what were they before that? We're just house of Israel. I mean, Peter was a Jew and James and John were Jews and Jesus was a Jew. This is, this is Judaism. This is what it's for. But as the scribes and Pharisees were saying to him, no, that is not Judaism. We cannot accept that as our church. That's not our religion. We're going to have to give you a new name and brand you something different in order to maintain brand purity for ourselves. You, cannot, you can't go around saying that you're the house of Israel. You can't so go around saying that yours is Judaism. 
No, yours is a Judaism destroyed because you've added scripture. You've called new apostles. And Jesus would say, no, this is a Judaism fulfilled. Anytime God's people have been upon the earth, his prophets have led them and have produced scripture. This New Testament is evidence that the Old Testament is not destroyed. It's fulfilled. We're moving forward. We're building upon it, not tearing it down. And with the restoration of the Church of Jesus Christ, again, you get this sense of, no, they're not Christian. They're different. We're trying to maintain brand purity. They've added scripture. They've, they've have new prophets and apostles. And we say, and that's, that is Christianity destroyed, to which we would say humbly, I hope. No, this is Christianity fulfilled. And by building it up, we are not trying to tear you down. I think too often we overplay the apostasy as if it was pitch black. And we don't have to do that to make the light of the restoration shine brilliantly. It's like John Taylor once said, I can't remember the exact quote, but he basically said, oh, if those were dark ages, then bring back some of that darkness because it's a lot brighter than a lot of the so-called illumination of the, of the intolerant 19th century. Give me some of the inspiration of a Luther or a Calvin, a Zwingli or a Knox, a Wycliffe, a Tyndale. Bring back some of that marvelous light. Those who kept the flame burning, those who nourished the woman, even during her years in the wilderness. Please remember what Nephi says at the end of 2 Nephi. In that great passage about a Bible, a Bible, we already have a Bible, we don't need another Bible. Now that part of the verse is a caution for those that are saying, nope, you've come to destroy, and, and they're afraid. And yet the other part of the verse is for us Latter-day Saints. When he says, oh, so you love the Bible? Do you really? Do you have any understanding of how much work it took to produce it and preserve it? You Christians who claim such loyalty to the, to the Bible, does it ever cross your mind what it cost the Jews to bring forth salvation unto you, is the way he describes it. In fact, he says, do you remember the labors and pains and travails of the Jews in bringing forth salvation unto you? You catch the symbolism there? Labors, pains, travails, bringing forth, sound like a pregnant woman? Sound like this woman laboring in travail to bring forth the kingdom of God? Do you appreciate it? In other words, Christians, you owe the Jews. Latter-day Saints, you owe the early Christians. You owe Catholicism. You owe Protestantism. You owe the Church Fathers and all those amazing theologians that preserved Scripture. You owe those monks hunched over their writing desks with candlelight trying to transcribe scripture. You owe reformers who brought that scripture back into the light of day, out of the Latin, into the vernacular. You owe those who gave their lives, martyrs' deaths, to preserve something meant to bring salvation to us. What spurred the restoration? A young boy reading a verse of scripture from the Bible a book preserved by those who were nourishing the woman in the wilderness. So to all of you Christians, all of you Catholics and Protestants who belong to the Church 
of Christ. You have nothing to fear from the restoration. We are not here to condemn or to destroy. We are here to fulfill and to build up. We are here to encourage you to hold on to the part of the gospel you have and open the other hand for additional parts that the Lord is trying to restore to you. An understanding of who you are and where you came from and where you're going. An understanding of God's covenant relationship with His children and the role we play in helping Him fulfill it. Answers to the questions of the fate of the unevangelized. How do we extend the blessings of Jesus Christ to all of humanity? Both those alive and those who have already passed on. This is God's work and His glory. This is His kingdom. This is the child being raised so that He can rule the nations with His rod of iron. This is the woman coming out of the wilderness and bringing with her in gratitude all those who nourished her for time and times and half a time. Of all the blessings I felt I received from my years at Divinity School, it was a sense of companionship and camaraderie with those of other faiths that were trying, just like I do, to build the Kingdom of God. And to all of them, friends of mine all, you need not fear for you shall inherit the kingdom of heaven. When I sometimes had conversations with wonderful and well-meaning friends of other faiths, that sometimes in their brutal honesty, when once we were friendly enough and knew each other well enough, they could say it. They said, Jared, I, I, I love you. I hope you don't take this in the wrong way, but you're going to hell. You, you've added scripture. You come up with new prophets and apostles. You, you, you're destroying Christianity. You're not one of us. Because you worship some other Jesus, you're, you're, you're going to hell. And often I've said, you know, I, I, I'm not offended at all. Thank you for your concern for my eternal welfare. But I hope you don't take it wrong when I say that I can't say the same to you. I can't condemn you to hell. As Latter-day Saint, we barely even believe in the place. To you who are striving to build God's kingdom, who are striving to follow Jesus Christ, you shall inherit the kingdom of heaven. Nothing to fear. Compare that to verse 56. Who should fear? Those who don't fear God. Those who don't keep His commandments. Those who build up churches unto themselves to get gain. Yea, and all those that do wickedly and build up the kingdom of the devil. Yea, verily, verily, I say unto you, that it is they that I will disturb and cause to tremble and shake to the center. Interesting that even there he holds himself back. He doesn't use the word destroy. I'm not here to destroy you. I'm here to disturb you. Satan stirs people up unto anger. The Lord stirs people up unto repentance. The adversary wants you to tremble and shake so that you fall. The Lord wants you to tremble and shake so that you'll rise with newness of life and come unto Him. You see, we're getting somewhere really important in verse 56 because he's talking about churches. And that's kind of a vague term because it's generic. Lowercase c, there's nothing specific here. There's no registered trademarks. It's just my church as opposed to those who build up churches to themselves. Now, he's talked about the kingdom of heaven in 55 
as opposed to the kingdom of the devil in 56. So what are we talking about? It's church A versus church B, church of of Christ versus church of yourself, uh, kingdom of God versus kingdom of the devil. Now with this, you've got to go to 1 Nephi 14. Nephi is having these visions. In 13, he sees a church emerge and the loss of plain and precious parts as a book, the Bible, is passed through its hands. And unfortunately, we sometimes start worrying in 1 Nephi 13, or even worse than worrying, we sometimes start pointing the finger at specific earthly institutions that we name that church, the great and abominable church, the whore of all the earth, the church of the devil. It's got all kinds of nicknames in 1 Nephi 13. But please never stop there without continuing into 1 Nephi 14 where you see this all-important clarification. 1 Nephi 14.10, he says this, Behold, there are saved two churches only. The one is the church of the Lamb of God, and the other is the church of the devil. Wherefore, whoso belongeth not to the church of the Lamb of God, belongeth to that great church, which is the mother of abominations, and she is the whore of all the earth. Now, Nephi's visions are an example of apocalyptic literature. And apocalyptic literature does a great job of, of polarizing things, making it as stark as black and white, light and darkness, good and evil, as you can get. It's forcing the question and choice upon each of us, which side will we be on? Remember how Doctrine and Covenants 1 ends, that first preliminary preface section, that this polarization will take place? Satan will have control over his dominions, and the Lord will have power over his saints. No more middle ground, right? We talked about that, no spiritual Switzerland. Well, it's because there's only two options. And one is the adversary, and one is the Lord. But both camps are referred to as churches. Now that should cure us of any misconception as far as labeling things specifically by names of, of churches in our day. Because the way Nephi paints it, it's just, are you with me or are you against me? Are you trying to build up the kingdom of God or are you trying to tear it down? In fact, if 1 Nephi 14.10 isn't clear enough, add to it 2 Nephi 10.16. This is now Jacob building on what his older brother Nephi had taught. And he says this, Wherefore he that fighteth against Zion, both Jew and Gentile, both bond and free, both male and female, shall perish. For they are they who are the whore of all the earth. For they who are not for me are against me, saith our God. You see what Jacob just did to clarify things? He just let us know, what's that other church? Sadly, through our history, some people have unfortunately labeled specific churches, oh, that's the whore of all the earth, that's the church of the devil. No, the church of the devil, the whore of all the earth, is simply anyone who fights against Zion. It's a tug of war. There's only two directions to pull. Are you trying to bring people towards God, towards Christ, towards light and truth and goodness, or are you trying to pull people away from it? And I love how Jacob says, this is both Jew or Gentile. It's both male or female. It's both bond or free. We could say it's both member and non-member. It's both Catholic and Protestant. It's both Latter-day Saint and community of Christ. It's both atheist and believer. It's both, it's everybody. All of God's children are pulled in both directions, and we break the tie. Will we approach light, or will we seek darkness? It's as simple as that. Zion or Babylon, church or world. Are there Latter-day Saints?
who are part of the Church of the Lamb? Yeah. But are there Latter-day Saints who are part of the Church of the Devil? Unfortunately, yes as well. And the same is true of every other church or non-church out there. These two sides, are you aiming towards light or darkness? Which direction are you pulling in? And that big church, the Church of the Lamb, the Good Shepherd, calling to all of his sheep to come, separating sheep from goats, the Church of the Lamb, the big encompassing church, is being helped and guided and built up and restored by the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. We can afford to be much more inclusive than we tend to be. In fact, more than afford to. We can't afford not to. We have to be more reassuring to those of other faiths that happen to be of faith, those of other churches who happen to be of the Church of the Lamb. You have nothing to fear from the restoration of the gospel. And then what does the Lord say? He lets those sheep know the shepherd's voice. A voice that so many righteous, good people, Jew, Gentile, male, female, bond free, across the board and throughout history, will recognize. He says in 57, Behold, I am Jesus Christ, the Son of God. I came unto mine own, and mine own received me not. I am the light which shineth in darkness, and the darkness comprehendeth it not. I am he who said, Other sheep have I, which are not of this fold, unto my disciples. And many there were that understood me not. And I will show unto this people that I had other sheep, and that they were a branch of the house of Jacob. You get what he's saying in all of these verses? You understand who I am? I'm the Son of God which makes me brother to all of you. I'm light, and I'm used to being rejected by darkness. I'm used to not being received by my own. I know what it's like to be on the outside of things, even when you belong on the in. And so to all of you who consider yourselves other sheep, come into the fold. I'm calling to you. See, unfortunately, as Latter-day Saints, we seem to have the corner on the market on that other sheep verse, because we know what he was referring to there in John chapter 10. Oh, the other sheep, those are the Nephites, and we have their book. Ha <laughs> ha! We've got the fullness of the gospel. We have all the truth. And I just wonder here if the Lord is cautioning, right as the church is about to come forth, hasn't even been restored yet, right? The church is being called out of the wilderness as we speak. You have to be inclusive. Your exclusivity as my chosen people has to be in pursuit of inclusivity. All of my children. Your freedom in this land has to be spread to every nation, kindred, tongue, and people. House of Abraham, you and your seed, exclusive, has to bless all the nations of the earth, inclusive. You who are chosen must go out and choose all others to be chosen as well. This church of Jesus Christ, meant to build up and gather in all of the church of the Lamb from every age and from every organization. Are you still open to other sheep? Rather than fighting against those that deny the other sheep of the Book of Mormon, are we guilty of denying the other sheep 
in whatever fold they may be found, Catholic sheep and Protestant sheep, Buddhist sheep and Hindu sheep, Jewish sheep, Muslim sheep, atheist sheep who don't yet know the voice that in their best moments they are responding to when they are working for the good of others thinking they're working on their own. I pray this makes sense because we have to be better at this. We have to be more inclusive of other sheep because we have something to offer them within this fold. Tragically, it is often their fear that keeps them from us. And what are they afraid of? They're afraid of us. We have to help them hear in our voice, the voice of Jesus Christ, which they have grown accustomed to hearing for a long, long time. In verse 61, I will bring to light their marvelous works, which they did in my name. I look forward to that as the Lord introduces sheep to sheep and fold to fold. And do you understand what I've been doing through all of these groups throughout history? Instead of looking for evidences of apostasy during wilderness years, instead of searching for darkness in dark ages, keep an eye out for light because the Lord will someday show all of us their marvelous works. It's one of my favorite things about studying early Christian history. Not just the apostolic age, but the contribution of the post-apostolic fathers, the early church fathers, from Augustine to Aquinas, Reformation history, the unfolding of ah, just the bringing forth of the woman out of the wilderness, the preservation of her, the nourishing and feeding that so many people gave at their own incredible cost. The history of the apostasy is full of ravens doing all they can to bring food to the woman they're trying to preserve. And someday we will all be witnesses to their marvelous works. Verse 62, Yea, I will also bring to light my gospel, which was ministered unto them. They knew more than we sometimes admit. And behold, they shall not deny that which you have received, but they shall build it up and shall bring to light the true points of my doctrine, yea, and the only doctrine which is in me. You see the beautiful reciprocity there? I don't deny what you've given, and you don't deny what I am bringing to the table as well. We're here to build it up. Was it Newton that said, the only reason I might see further than others is because I stand on the shoulders of giants? Well, Latter-day Saints owe a great debt to Judaism, to Christianity, to the Protestant Reformation, to all of this, there are giants upon whose shoulders we stand as we are trying to build up what they so beautifully preserved. Verse 63, all for this intent, this I do that I may establish my gospel. And notice this, that there may not be so much contention Yea, Satan to stir up the hearts of the people to contention concerning the points of my doctrine. And in these things they do err, for they do rest the scriptures and do not understand them. Are we guilty as charged? Over and over in 3rd Nephi, remember Jesus kept saying this? To the righteous that had survived the destruction of the wicked, the good guys, gathered and bountiful. And what's he say over and over? Contention is of the devil, it's not of me. 
Why are there disputations among you concerning the points of my doctrine? They're fighting over the manner of baptism. They're fighting over the, the name of the church. They're fighting over who can be re uh, forgiven with, with repentance and who shouldn't be. These are good people with righteous desires and important questions to settle. But as we talked about in 3 Nephi, as important as orthodoxy is, it must be orthodoxy pursued through unity. And God seems to care as much about the journey as about the destination. If you are not one, you are not mine. All of my churches that constitute my church, you've got to figure out how to get along. And as you do so, I will lead you along line upon line and precept upon precept until my true and full gospel is established among you. You'll stop resting the scriptures. You'll start understanding them. And best of all, you'll start understanding each other. What an irony that the adversary can use orthodoxy to spawn disunity. No wonder the Lord keeps trying to gain the unity of the faith. We're nowhere near that yet. Well, how's he going to do it? In verse 64, he admits, it's a mystery. I will unfold unto them this great mystery. How are you going to do this? Verse 65, behold, I will gather them. That's how we do it. You come to know each other and serve together and work together and live amongst each other. You get gathered as a hen gathereth her chickens under her wings, if they will not harden their hearts, them against you and you against them, just soften. There was a fascinating book I read years ago about kind of the sociology of religion in the United States. And the authors made a, a profound insight when they said, the challenge is when devotion and diversity coincide. There are some places in the world where religious devotion is high, but religious diversity is low. They use the Middle East as an example. High devotion, very little diversity. And so we believe strongly, passionately about things. But thankfully, we agree with each other. And so there's no conflict. Flip it around, and what about places of high diversity, but low devotion? They used Europe as the example. Incredibly diverse area, religiously speaking. But because devotion tends to be lower there, there's no conflict because, hey, we don't agree with each other, but we don't really care about the things we disagree on. Compare that to places where there is high devotion and high diversity. They use the United States as their example, where people feel passionately about things they disagree on. And that is a recipe for disaster. That's where the conflict really has the potential to arise. And yet, amazingly, there's been very little religious conflict recently in the United States. And how are we avoiding that tinderbox, that powder keg, their answer? because we're getting to know each other. We have friends of other faiths. We have family members that, that believe differently than we do. But because we have relationships with them, there is a unity there in spite of a lack of uniformity there. And that makes all the difference. How are we going to achieve this, this great mystery of unity on the way towards orthodoxy? Please understand, I'm not trying to avoid orthodoxy. That's the goal. There is a truth. There is one way, truth, and life. It is Jesus Christ. It is His full gospel. It is His priesthood authority. But there has to be unity on the way to orthodoxy. And the mystery is, is solved by this. To gather together. To become friends.
instead of enemies. It's hard to dehumanize someone that you know is a fellow human. It's hard to demonize someone that has become a friend. So, verse 66, if they will come, they may. Let them. Open the wings. Let them gather. Let them partake of the waters of life and do it freely. Can we be more open as Jesus is? Gathering Nicodemus and gathering the woman at the well. Gathering Jews and gathering Samaritans. An Israelite here, a Syrophoenician there, a publican, a zealot, you name it. Just come. I am Jesus Christ, the Son of God. You'd be amazed at how many other sheep I'm open to. Verse 67, Behold, this is my doctrine. Whosoever repenteth and cometh unto me, the same is my church. Take that as your definition of the big C church, the church of the Lamb, full of sheep who recognize his voice, who come unto him, who repent of whatever it is that's keeping them from him. If you're doing that, then you're moving in the right direction. And I hope we're all moving together. Verse 68, whosoever declareth more or less than this in pursuit of orthodoxy at the expense of unity, the same is not of me, but is against me. Therefore, he is not of my church. You're moving people in the wrong direction. You're scaring them away when this is meant to be a welcoming fold. Verse 69, now behold, whosoever is of my church and endureth of my church to the end. What comes at that end? Him will I establish upon my rock, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against them. That's where the fullness of the gospel comes in. That's where the restoration stands. But just stay in the church. Endure in the church. The big, all-inclusive, big C church. The Father will coax you in gently, in His own time and His own way, into the covenant He has made with His children. We'll see that beautifully taught in section 84. You'll have to be patient till we get there. But that's the rock we'll stand on. And the gates of hell will not prevail. I know we started very specific. It's almost like, wait, are we still talking about the lost 116 pages? Are we still talking about this very specific, narrow element of this battle? Oh, sure. But we're really talking about the war. The grand, overarching light versus darkness, good versus evil. This is just a, a small foray into the large theater of this grand battle. And the Lord is calling us to the victory. They cannot win. Verse 70, now remember the words of him who is the life and light of the world, your Redeemer, your Lord, your God. Amen. So let him shine. Step out of the darkness. Come unto the light. He's here to redeem you, your Lord and God. Remember his words. Let them enter your heart and let them change you. Now after that grand panorama, that, that 30,000 foot view of the earth below and seeing the, the, the battle unfold and where we are and the various armies and things taking place, section 11 becomes much more specific, addressed to a single soldier, namely Hiram Smith. Now if ever there was a celestial soul, it was Hiram. I love Joseph, but Joseph loved Hiram in profound ways. Hiram loved him back. Hiram was six years his senior 
Remember when Joseph was a young boy and had that leg operation, all the pain that, that preceded and followed it? Well, even before the operation, when Mother Smith was, was at the point of exhaustion, just trying to care for her son, Hiram, six years older, would come and just press on his little brother's leg to try to help alleviate some of the pain. He would do it for hours on end. Hiram was always there for Joseph and was never threatened by Joseph's position. Eventually, Hiram took his father's place as patriarch of the church, eventually took Oliver Cowdery's place, not only as assistant president, but also as second martyr in Carthage. Hiram was the brother of a prophet, the father of a prophet, the grandfather of a prophet. In fact, his prophetic grandson said this about his grandpa. It seems almost from the tender solicitude Hiram displayed for Joseph that he felt in some way that there had been placed upon him a guardianship for his younger brother. John Taylor, who was with both Joseph and Hiram in Carthage, said this about Hiram. If ever there was an exemplary, honest, and virtuous man, an embodiment of all that is noble in the human form, Hiram Smith was its representative. Brigham Young, who knew him well, said that Hiram was as good a man as ever lived. His integrity was of the highest order. I used to think, and I think now, that an angel dwelling in the presence of the Father and the Son possessed no more integrity in their hearts than did Hiram Smith. Joseph himself said something similar about his big brother, that if, if two people were in disagreement and Hiram couldn't solve the issue, then not even the angels of heaven stood a chance. He was just that good. Joseph said about him, I could pray in my heart that all my brethren were like unto my beloved brother Hiram, who possesses the mildness of a lamb and the integrity of a Job, and in short, the meekness and humility of Christ. And I love him with that love that is stronger than death. And if those kinds of mortal accolades were insufficient, Jesus himself said this of Hiram in a revelation late in his life. Again, verily I say unto you, blessed is my servant Hiram Smith, for I, the Lord, love him because of the integrity of his heart, and because he loveth that which is right before me, saith the Lord. You see that about him? He loves what I love, and how can I not love him for it? Now with that in mind, section 11 is such a beautiful, tailor-made message for Hiram Smith. Now, as I mentioned last time in section 6, the first nine verses of this revelation are identical to the first nine verses of that revelation to Oliver Cowdery. And the first six here are the same six that we'll see with section 12 and section 14 in the coming weeks. And as I did last week, I'll do again this week, I'm going to skip those first t uh, nine verses and save them for a couple weeks from now. But in verse 10, he speaks of Hiram's gift. Behold, thou hast a gift, or thou shalt have a gift, if thou wilt desire of me, in faith, with an honest heart, believing in the power of Jesus Christ, or in my power, which speaketh unto thee. Now, he doesn't get specific here as to what the gift is. With Oliver Cowdery, he was more specific. The gift of revelation, the gift of translation, the gift of Aaron. But here, for Hiram, you have a gift. At least you will if you keep desiring. I, I mean, I love what he lists in verse 10 of, of how we access gifts. Remember we talked about that last time? This is your gift. Apply unto it or claim them. 
Well, here it'll be your gift if, you, if desire is there, if faith is there, if honesty is there, if belief in the power of Christ is there. Well, based on all those statements about Hiram that I just shared with you, I think I get a sense of what this gift might be. Just the way he was, the type of spiritual attributes that come as an ultimate gift of God. Now, I think he's going to get a little more specific about it in just a moment. He says in verse 12, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Put your trust in that Spirit, which leadeth to do good, yea, to do justly, to walk humbly, to judge righteously. This is my Spirit. He's going to talk about the Spirit for most of the rest of this revelation, which makes me think that when he speaks of this gift, that that gift is the Holy Ghost, and all the gifts that come along with it, we speak of the, the influence of the Holy Ghost, and the gift of the Holy Ghost, and the gifts of the Spirit. And later in section 109, we'll learn about growing up in God and receiving a fullness of the Holy Ghost. So there seems to be this broad spectrum of just how much Spirit do we have in our lives. From the simple light of Christ to the glorious fullness of the Holy Ghost. And I think based on everything that I know about Hiram Smith and what everyone says about him, here was a man who lived into that spirit and allowed it to change him. Think about what he says in 12. Trust that spirit. Place your trust there. Just do, follow where he leads. Become what he's fashioning you into. He will lead you to do this, to do good, to do justly, to walk humbly, to judge righteously. And I sometimes wonder if if the life of discipleship really can be condensed down to those simple phrases. Can you do good? Can you do what's right? Can you do justly? But at the same time, walk humbly? See, this is hard to combine them all. Because sometimes if we're doing justly, it's really hard to walk humbly. Because we're so righteous. We're, I mean, we're nailing this thing. I mean, so much better than those around us. I don't know. To do justly, but at, say, at the same time, to walk humbly. And how do you navigate that? By judging righteously. So we're not condemning those around us. It's so much easier to walk humbly around others when we're judging them righteously. When we see what they're up against and recognize that they're running according to the strength and means that they've been given. You see, it reminds me of this beautiful verse in Micah, which in some ways does reduce the entire burden of discipleship into a few simple phrases. He hath showed thee, O man, what is good, and what doth the Lord require of thee but to do justly, and to love mercy, and to walk humbly with thy God. That's it. Can you kind of sense the echo here in section 11, verse 12? The way Micah put it, just do what's right. Do justly. Hold yourself to that standard. But be careful about holding everyone else to the same one at your pace anyway. Do justly, that's you doing what's right, but love mercy, that's being okay with wherever someone else happens to be. And throughout it all, to walk humbly with thy God. It reminds me of the Sermon on the Mount. Chapter 5, become perfect, there's the do justly. Chapter 6, but purify your motives so you're doing this for the right reason. There's walk humbly. And then chapter 7, and quit judging those that are still back in chapter 5 or chapter 6. You used to be. That's love mercy. 
again, I think it all does kind of collapse into those phrases. Do justly, there's the first great commandment. Love mercy, there's the second great commandment. And walk humbly with God. It's what keeps it all together. He continues on that theme in verse 13. Still speaking of the Spirit. Verily, verily, I say unto you, I will impart unto you of my Spirit, which shall enlighten your mind, which shall fill your soul with joy. Can you hear echoes of the Spirit of Revelation as defined for Oliver Cowdery? I'll speak to the mind and the heart. Well, I will enlighten your mind, as opposed to your mind being in darkness, as Joseph struggled with the loss of the 116 pages. I will fill your soul with joy. There's the feelings of the heart. Both mind and heart or soul, light, joy, all of those fruits of the Spirit, as Paul taught the Galatians. And with an enlightened mind and a joyous soul, how can you not do justly and walk humbly and judge righteously? You've got the Spirit with you. Verse 14, Then shall ye know, or by this shall you know, through the Spirit, all things whatsoever you desire of me, which are pertaining unto things of righteousness, in faith believing in me that you shall receive. Again, if you put your trust in that Spirit, not only will it lead you into righteous actions and joyful feelings, it will help you know whatever you need to know. But there is a timetable here. Verse 15, Behold, I command you that you need not suppose that you are called to preach until you are called. Now, that seems a little redundant. You're not called until you're called. Okay. But do you sense almost this chomping at the bit, this sense of urgency on Hiram's part? I just want to get going. I want to start. What are we waiting for? Well, we're waiting on some really important things, Hiram. Namely, verse 16, Wait a little longer until you shall have my word, my rock, my church, my gospel, that you may know of a surety my doctrine. You're chomping at the bit, ready to go preach the gospel. You don't even have it yet. And if you're going to go preach, I want you to preach true doctrine. Remember, orthodoxy isn't meant to trump unity, but orthodoxy is still a goal. I want you to have true doctrine to teach. Otherwise, you'll just be resting the scripture like everybody else does. You won't understand. So hold off a little, wait a little longer. My word, my rock, my church, my gospel, it's all come in. You don't have to wait much longer. The Book of Mormon is being prepared for publication. The priesthood is about to be restored. The church is about to be organized. The woman is coming out of the wilderness. Just wait for her. She'll teach you what you need to preach. After all, She's been waiting a long time to raise this son she gave birth to. So I know you feel called. And, and you have been. But there's a calling and then there's a calling. There's a call before the call, if you want to put it that way. There's this desire within you. But there's a need also for ordination. We saw that back in section 3. Uh, there's a need for clear doctrine. There's a need for preparation on your part. Now this is only half the contrary. Because I can, as I was reading this and pondering it, I thought of, well, there's also that other verse that, well, you shouldn't have to be compelled in all things. So here we are trying to find the Goldilocks zone again. That on the one hand, well, don't, you're not called until you're called. But on the other hand, well, what are you waiting for? You shouldn't have to be told everything to do. Ah, which one is it? Well, follow the Spirit, which will lead you to do justly and walk humbly and judge righteously and so on. It'll enlighten your mind. It'll fill your soul. It'll tell you what to say. And it'll help you with the timetable. It will give you this initial 
call, this desire to go do. It will also inspire others to extend more formal callings that authorize you to do things that otherwise you wouldn't be authorized to do. There, there's an interesting balance here I think we need to strike. Well, verse 17, Then behold, according to your desires, yea, even according to your faith, shall it be done unto you. We saw that in section 10. The, the ancient Book of Mormon prophets with their desire and their faith. We saw that with John the Beloved and his faith and desire to engage in this work. Hiram, you're in good company. Verse 18, in the meantime, keep my commandments. Hold your peace. Appeal unto my spirit. I think sometimes it's in those impatient holding patterns where we can grow lax in our obedience we can grow impatient and lose peace. That we can somehow, I don't know, think that the Spirit will only begin to work on us later when I can actually get going. Well, no, appeal to the Spirit right now. He'll help you know what to do in the meantime. Verse 19, Cleave unto me with all your heart, that you may assist in bringing to light those things of which has been spoken. Yea, the translation of my work, be patient until you shall accomplish it. Hiram was involved in this work too, helping with the printer's manuscript, trying to get things all set up so that the book can actually come forth. And all throughout it, he was cleaving unto the Lord with all his heart. Honestly, I don't even know if he needed to be reminded of that. Maybe that's more counsel for us than for him, because that's just the way he was. The Spirit helped fashion him into that kind of disciple. Now verse 20, I love what Elder Bednar said about this verse. That this is the other half of Moses 1.39. In Moses 1.39, the Lord tells us what His work is and adds that it's also His glory. Not just what He does, but who He is. It's not just, you know, punching the time card going, oh great, another day on the chain gang. No, my work and my glory is to bring to pass the immortality and eternal life of man. It's what I love to do. And as He said in previous revelations already, and my work shall go forth. This is a marvelous work. Nothing can stop the work from going forward. He will bring to pass our immortality and eternal life. He is intent on winning that war. But since it's not all on him, agency was the issue in the war in heaven, right? What is it? What's our part? Verse 20, Behold, this is your work. And maybe we should add, and hopefully it is our glory, to keep my commandments, yea, with all your might, mind, and strength. That's the work we're called upon to do. Not to earn salvation, but to learn what a saved life consists of. To get up to speed, to realize that's what the life of a, a disciple is. So keep the commandments. Do it with all your might, mind, and strength. Now, some have wondered, well, what about heart? Because he always says, heart, might, mind, and strength. That was section four. Well, what about now it's just might, mind, and strength? Well, I think heart is already assumed at the beginning. Remember what we saw as a differentiation between those four. That if your heart, which is the, the target uh, body part for both God and the devil, if your heart is your disposition, what you just determine, and this is the direction I'm going to spend my life moving in, if you have decided, I'm going to keep my, God's commandments, this is my work to do, and my heart is fully engaged in it, I have set my direction, then what? I simply need to apply all my might 
those resources and influence, all my mind, the knowledge and wisdom that I gain through study and faith, all my strength, all the energies of my soul. Once my heart is, is fixed on God and His commandments, His work, then all I've got left to offer is my might, mind, and strength. I'm ready to give it all to Him. And then verse 21, a very famous verse, which hopefully makes more sense now that we've seen it in context, about having to wait a little longer till the Word and Rock and Church and Gospel is ready for Him. 21, Seek not to declare my word, but first seek to obtain my word. And then, see the, the, the first and the then, this is just order here. Then shall your tongue be loosed. Then, if you desire, you shall have my spirit and my word, yea, the power of God unto the convincing of men. I love that verse. Before you declare it, obtain it. Now, I think often we see that as, oh yeah, I need to go to the MTC before I head out on the mission field. I need to gain a testimony before I share it. I need to learn the gospel before I can teach it. And that's all true. It's wonderful. But I sometimes think that we consider that a one and done. Well, I, I read the Book of Mormon, now I can go share it. You know, I've, I read the material, or I, I know the lesson, or I have a testimony, and I'm good to go. Where I think, honestly, we could apply verse 21 to every opportunity we have to declare God's Word. Every lesson we teach, every sermon we give, every family home evening we share, any time we share our testimony, have we re-obtained the Word so that it's quick and powerful again, so that it's alive and well, so that it's fresh and, and full of fire. I don't think obtaining the word is a one and done. It's a Heavenly Father, help me feel again. Cast my mind upon the night that I cried unto thee. Help me know as I once knew. Help me teach with power and passion, with freshness and fire. Help me become a new convert again and teach these things out of my own changed heart. Then your tongue will be loosed. I mean, nothing will be able to hold it back. It'll be fire in the bones, as Jeremiah described. But then this interesting phrase. He says, then, if you desire, you shall have my spirit and my word. Now, my spirit and my word, that's awesome. That's in the armor of God. That's the sword. It's the only offensive weapon we get. Okay. It's what cuts to the quick. That's actually how he begins this section, and section 6, and section 12, and section 14. This sword in the hand, quick and powerful. That's the Spirit of God. But if you desire, wow, after everything we've learned about the Spirit in verse 12, and 13, and 14, how could we not desire that? Now, sadly, I think there's an answer to that. And it's that we desire something else instead. Maybe not something ultimately, but yeah, something right now. I desire the gratification of pride or the succumbing to sin. We desire something the world has to offer instead of all that God is presenting to us. We can have the Spirit more than we do, Elder Bednar has taught. Our humanity may make us fall short of the goal of His constant companionship. But we can strive for that. We can get closer to it. If we desire it more than we desire anything else, 
Remember that general authority training that Boyd K. Packer gave in April of 2000? Elder Von J. Featherstone talks about it in a talk that he gave, that he said that training, and Elder Featherstone had been a 70 for like 30 years, so he'd gotten a lot of general authority trainings over those decades. But he said of all those that he'd ever received, that was the most life-changing of all from Boyd K. Packer. And what had President Packer taught them? Well, just as importantly, what had he done to prepare to teach them? What had he done to obtain the word before he declared it? President Packer said that in preparation for that general authority training, he reread Jesus the Christ. And then he reread the life of Christ by Frederick Farrar. Then he reread Fox's Book of Martyrs, which we talked about uh, in section 7. Interesting read. And then he reread the standard works, namely everything in them that had anything to do with the Holy Ghost. And at the end of all that preparation, I mean, hello, when was the last time you gave a talk in church? How, how much time did you prepare? Did you read that much? I mean, there's a stack. President Packer did. And based on all that preparation, what was his message? What was the word that he declared having first obtained it? That you, we have to teach the members of the church to live worthy of the Holy Ghost 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, for the rest of their lives. Now, when I first heard from Elder Featherstone that that was the message, frankly, I was a little underwhelmed. I thought, well, I could have told you that before reading all those books. But that was the point. Elder Packer told them that after reading all of those books, when he, had he, when he paid a price to obtain any word to declare. But what was the word he obtained? That one. If you desire my spirit, we better desire it. We better desire it more than we desire anything else and live accordingly to put our trust in that spirit, to appeal unto that spirit, to exercise that gift, because that's the one that God is offering Hiram and all of us. If we do, we'll have his spirit, we'll have his word, we'll be able to declare it and we'll do it with the power of God unto the convincing of men. I study rhetoric to see how it's been used against the truths of God. How language is manipulated to try to work in the heart and plant thoughts and draw out emotions that lead people away from God. Well, the opposite? Can you imagine that divine rhetoric? Not just the tongue of men, not even the tongue of angels, but infused with charity so it's far more than tinkling cymbals or sounding brass, to have the power of God unto the convincing of men, so that you have persuasive power, so that when you declare the word, having first obtained it, people are moved, drawn, almost impelled to follow that counsel. God has that power. Jesus wielded it well. Maybe that's why Joseph said of his big brother that if Hiram couldn't get two people to agree with each other, then not even the angels of heaven could. Maybe it's because he had developed such reliance on the Spirit that he could teach with the power of God unto the convincing of men. What a gift. What a gift for us to, to try to develop. Then in verse 22, But now... Hold your peace. <laughs> oh, that's, I want to go, but then hold me back. It's, I want to run fast. Well, be it's trying to strike this balance. After verse 21, I'm raring to go. And 22, rein it in. Hold your peace. What do I do in the meantime? 
study my word. And notice what he asks him and us to study. Study my word which hath gone forth among the children of men. There's the Bible. That part of the gospel that we're trying to build on, not destroy. What else? Also study my word which shall come forth among the children of men, or that which is now translating. So there's the Book of Mormon. And then beyond that, yea, until you have obtained all which I shall grant unto the children of men in this generation. That could include the Doctrine and Covenants, Pearl of Great Price, so forth. And then shall all things be added thereto. So there's still even more yet to come beyond that generation. Verse 22 seems to suggest those three shelves I always refer to. Revelation past, Revelation present, and Revelation future. It's like the Bible, the Book of Mormon, and any other truth yet to come. Man, talk about an incredible curriculum to dive into. I guess I'm okay holding my peace for a while. i got plenty of studying to do. And then 23, Behold, thou art Hiram, my son. Such tenderness there, such familiarity. What a relationship. He's said similar things to Joseph, to Martin, to Oliver. God knows us. He knows us as sons and daughters and addresses us as such. And then this invitation, seek the kingdom of God and all things shall be added according to that which is just. Just put it in order chronological order of priority just seek the kingdom verse 24 build upon my rock it's coming which is my gospel 25 deny not the spirit of revelation nor the spirit of prophecy for woe unto him that denieth these things those are all part of the gifts of the spirit that come from that ultimate gift of the holy ghost 26, therefore treasure up in your heart until the time which is in my wisdom that you shall go forth. For anyone waiting on a mission call, for anyone waiting on a calling, for anyone waiting for the temples to reopen, for anyone waiting on anything, such powerful counsel. What do I do in the meantime? Obtain the word. Study the word. Seek the kingdom. Treasure up in your heart. All the things that God is trying to give you, I think our preparation time can be just as redemptive as the time that we seem to be actively engaged in the actual service. And notice verse 27. This isn't just for Hiram. Thankfully, we're included here. Behold, I speak unto all who have good desires, like Hiram did, and have thrust in their sickle to reap. And then he concludes, as he has so often in these revelations, Behold, I am Jesus Christ, the Son of God. I am the life and the light of the world. I am the same who came unto mine own, and mine own received me not. I'm calling you to give them all another chance. Verse 30, Verily, verily, I say unto you, that as many as receive me, to them will I give power to become the sons of God, in the fullest sense of the word, even to them that believe on my name. Amen. Literally, we are all sons and daughters of God. But spiritually, that takes growing up and becoming like him. And that is what Hiram and all of us are called upon to do for ourselves and for everyone else. That will require the power of God into the convincing of men, which requires the Holy Ghost. That requires our desire and our sacrifice, our obedience, our righteousness. It requires the atonement 
and grace of Jesus Christ. It's with that in mind that we can take this full circle and end where we began in that war in heaven and the description of what took place there back in Revelation chapter 12. Because there is a verse in that chapter that tells us how we won that war and how we will win every war that's taken place ever, ever since. Revelation 12, 11, And they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. And they loved not their lives unto the death. That's how we defeated the adversary then and how we'll defeat him now. It's the word of our testimony, the one that is about to come forth in the fullness of the gospel. It's the blood of the Lamb, this good shepherd calling to all his other sheep. It's not loving our lives unto the death. It's loving something else even more. It's loving truth and righteousness, loving justice and mercy, loving God enough to desire with all our hearts the fullness of the Holy Ghost. I bear testimony of the war that we are waging and particular testimony of the victory that God promises the faithful. If we will do our work, I know that God will do His.